Thank you for joining us on our journey here to preserve the history of mixed martial arts. When I wanted to take on this project, I needed help. I brought in one of my favorite matchmakers, Miguel Iterate, and the MMA detective, Mike Davis. So to do this, we've been able to preserve history. Welcome and enjoy. Welcome back, fans, to the Lights Out podcast. I appreciate you guys being here. Chris Lights Out Lido here, Mike and Miguel, as usual. Special treat right, right now. This is our first time, first time having someone who was there. UFC one, ladies and gentlemen. Very, very happy to have this guest, Jason DeLucia. Jason, well, I haven't seen you in years. How the hell you been, buddy? Very good. I love you. I miss you. <laughs> yeah. So where are you staying at right now? Where are you living? I'm in uh, Massachusetts. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, exactly. So, well, man, I mean, we have so many cool things. Um, it's hard to find somebody who was there way before me, but you're definitely one of them. So, I mean, oh. unbelievable. I want to hear all about this. Mike, man, take it off, and, and let's start from the beginning. All right. So, we mentioned UFC 1, but in my research, Jason, your journey to literally fight everybody started before 1993. Yeah. So, would you mind telling us, growing up, what art you took, and maybe some of your experiences of fighting in some of the local dojos, because that definitely happened. So uh, I grew up in a, uh, I grew up in a town on the border of Rhode Island, and the only traditional school that we had was a Taekwondo school. So I started in that school, and that school, over some time, it had been there forever, and it closed. And some of the members of the school opened up a school called uh, Combined Martial Arts in Bellingham. And in an interview in UFC one, uh, UFC sent a reporter to ask me some questions. And in the, in the uh, interview, he asked me about my lineage. So I told him about uh, CMA. That's what we call it, CMA. He says, well, tell me about it. I says, it's a mixed martial arts school. He said, mixed martial arts, I'd like to use that. I said, feel free. And I even asked Art Davey if he had transcripts of it. And he said, you may be responsible for it. And uh, that that's kind of a, one of those Forrest Gump moments in my life. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, um, so, so one of the rumors was that you would show up at local dojos with money in hand and you would challenge people to fights. We did my teacher. So I had, I had uh, my Taekwondo lot were all traditionalists, but then when they opened up CMA, um, I had a Kung Fu teacher who used to take me around to different dojos. And at the time I was young, I was 12, 13 when I was, 13, I had knocked out a number of guys who were 20-year-old kickboxers because they would never expect that I could do it, and and I could do it. I did it. Um, so we used to do dojo challenges all the time. And at the time, there was a chain of schools called Fred Valari's, and we used to call it Black Belt and a Hamburger to Go. So we, we kind of didn't like it. So if we saw Fred Valari's, he would send me in, and I would walk in and just, you know, wreak havoc because that's, that's what we did. Um, but around here kind of a big fish in a small pond. I hadn't seen anything like uh, the, the competitors that you see in UFC. I had never seen anything like that to the UFC. My teachers were all that that crazy, but I was just a kid, um, basically doing what, you know, what everybody was doing. Um, around 1991, 92, Steven Seagal had uh, released, he released a challenge. It was in response to some of the actors in Hollywood and Chuck Norris and those guys. And he said, uh, if anybody wants to challenge me, come to my dojo and be prepared to fight to the death. 
And I thought, oh, yeah. So a friend of mine who wanted to get into music agreed to go with me to Hollywood. So we went to Hollywood. We drove in three straight days. We drove to Hollywood. And that, that has a funny story in, in, in itself. I could go back. But um, I took the magazine with me. I went to his dojo the very second day. We got there. We found a place really quick. And uh, I went to his dojo. And Matsuka Harawa, who was the guy who he beats up in his movies, he was running the dojo. And I went in and I showed him the thing. And I had a written formal challenge. I said, he made this challenge. I said, I accept. And he told me straight up, he says, I don't think he's going to answer it. I said, fine. So I went every day, morning and night classes, every day that they were open. And I sat and I waited for six straight months until they moved, actually. They had moved. And this was through the riots. So they had finally moved to Santa Monica. The dojo closed. And I actually, my friend had a bike, a motorcycle. So we actually drove to Santa Monica just a couple of times. And then I gave up on it. In the interim... Wait, I need did, did you yeah. move to California to meet this challenge specifically? Specifically. For that only. Did you work when you were out there? Did you just get an apartment? How, how does we, that we so that, that was a funny story. While I was while I was wanting to go out there, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to make movies. I wanted to make karate movies. So I had a friend out here, uh, an old school thug, and I said, You know anybody in the entertainment business? And he says, yeah, I got a friend uh, out there. He's from Woonsocket, actually. And he says, his name is uh, Charles Bouvier. He says, he's acting in Hollywood. You see him on TV all the time. He says, when you get out there, look him up in the Screen Actors Guild. Tell him I sent you, and uh, he can hook you up. We drove three days straight across country. The first place we found was on Hollywood Boulevard. We gave them six months in, in uh, traveler's checks down because they wanted to do a credit check. And we're like, we're tired. We need a room. So we flashed six months in rent. And he goes, okay, you're in. So we moved in, first place we found. First day, I went and I did the, the challenge at Seagulls. And after that, I walked to the Screen Actors Guild and I asked them, I says, I want to look up this guy. And they said, uh, do you have an agent? I said, no, I don't have an agent. I says, I just want to, I want to talk to this guy. And they said, we can't give you that information without an agent. And I said, all right. So that was flustering. About three months in, I'm looking, I'm going to get the mail and I'm looking at the roster in my building. C. Bouvier. I go up and I knock on the... Yeah, we had moved into the building of the guy that I was supposed to be looking for who was an actor in Hollywood. Wow. That was just <laughs> weird. That's a Forrest Gump moment. I have a ton of... Um, but yeah, so in the interim, while I was waiting for this uh, Steven Seagal character to show up, um, a friend of mine who was a, a student at the school, CMA, he told me about the Gracies. He said, There's these guys out there and they will, uh, they will meet a money challenge in their dojo. So I looked them up, and I, I called, and I talked to Horian. And he told me about it. He says, you know, we could do it any number of ways. I said, I'd like to bet. And at the time, I was I was uh, running out of money, so I needed money. He says, so, so Jason, yeah. is, this like, is this like 91, 92? This is 92. So this is pre-UFC 1. Yep. This is right after the riots. I forget exactly what time it was, but it was after the riots. And uh, he, he said, he says, what do you want to bet? I says, I'll bet 600 bucks. He goes, all right. So we had a few weeks before the fight and I was training hard. And the day before we were supposed to go, he calls me up. He says, hey, I was thinking. He goes, uh, he goes, oh, I don't want to bet. He says, I don't want to do this for money. He says, we'll just do the fight and see what happens. So I said, all right. So I'm thinking in my head, oh, they're scared. They don't want to lose money. I don't know who these guys are for that. So we go. 
and I have the fight and uh, I get my ass kicked. And then after the fight, he goes, he goes, don't feel so bad. He goes, you made 600 bucks. And I looked at him and I went, yeah, why did you cancel? He goes, 500 bucks is a bet. A thousand bucks is a bet. 600 bucks is rent. And I just looked at him like, wow, yeah, good, good man. Good man. Yep. So that, that was your first interaction with the Gracie's, the Gracie challenge. You took it yep. one time. Do you yep. remember who your first opponent was? That was Hoist. I fought him in the dojo. That so Hoist was your first opponent. Yeah, that that fight's on YouTube. Yeah. Okay. Did you take it twice? No. I after that, I I they asked me, this you want to try it again? Because he, he says, Do you think you could have done anything different? And I said, You you want me to say what I would have tried different? He says, No, you just fight again. I said, No. I says, I says, you got my number, you kicked my ass. So, but over time, I wanted a rematch. I thought about it, I thought about it, I wanted a rematch. Um and when I would call for the rematch, he said, instead of a rematch, he says, we got this thing going on in Denver. He says, you could come to it. And if you compete your way up the ranks, he says, you'll get a chance to do that rematch again. And, you know, I half believed it because in this country, that, that type of thing hasn't happened since the days of John L. Sullivan kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I, said, I said, yeah, all right. I says, I'll do it. And that's how it started. So you got your initial invite to UFC one through Orion then. Yep. Yep. Wow. That makes sense because he it, the Gracies in the in the early nineties before the UFC started their media campaign, including the Gracie Challenge and stuff. And he answered the Gracie Challenge before that. And then all of a sudden Art Davy comes in, talks to Orion, sets up the deal for UFC. They're not going to let our Davy bring all the fighters. They were obviously, you know, we know they gave you Brazilian rafts and stuff, and obviously they were putting some people in it. I mean, Jason was an honest guy, 92 in terms of, like, honest in terms of in-the-ring action. You know, in 92, another year of training is probably a little better. It's a, it's a, it's a good move on Horian's part. Yeah. So, so, Jason, I went to some of the – like Massachusetts traditional martial art message boards. Some of them are still up. They've been maintained. Well, I should say they're, they're still up. They're not really active anymore. But there are several posts on there talking about you being an absolute menace to the area about chasing down and fighting people that are presumed black belts and you would go in with money bets. How often did you do that? That was, that was the type of thing that happened when I was much younger. Right. Um, after after fighting, it it never happened. Um, but when we, when I was younger, I had a teacher who, God rest his soul, um, he he just he encouraged all kinds of mayhem. And so you know the things that we would do and, and the things he would make me believe I could do. Um, there was only one time in my life that there was because I I loved that he would let me fight an adult. He would show me that if you if you do this fight the right way, you could beat this guy. So in his version of Kung Fu, we did a lot of uh, ground fighting, but not as extensive, judo-based, but not as extensive. So we would go into traditional karate schools where they didn't do any takedowns, any ground fighting. And that was a lot of what we would do um, with people. There was one guy that was, and I remember I was 14, almost 15, and I said, I want to fight that guy. And he said, no. I go, why? He goes, because he'll hit you once and you'll die. <laughs> I said, all right. That's the first time he'd ever made me believe I couldn't do something. So I knew there was a limit, but there was a time mm -hmm. when he made me believe I could do anything. 
And, and these were the fights you guys were you you actually were betting on, and that that's what the money was for. Yeah, some some folks bet. Uh, I never I never handled money, but some folks some folks did, and I would I would get some some kickbacks sometimes, but not every time. We would just do it to say that we we won. It, Miguel, it's your your almost like a, I think what you refer to as a dojo storm. It's one dojo shows up, challenges the fight. We got this young teenage kid. Yeah, they they said that. You were just a savage in that area when you were a kid. Yes. I just there was there was there was so many things. There was so much that went on. I mean, we were we were part of a, a you know the set the the seventies in particular because I was I was I started young. I started I was eight years old when I started training with kids in my neighborhood who were training formally, but I never got formally into the dojo because I didn't have any money. So one of my teachers took me to the dojo and I sat outside, wouldn't go in during class. And I sat there every day. And then um, one of uh, Master Cho, Heel Cho's uh, students, who was a, a PKA fighter back in the day, they all fought uh, PKFL. One of my teachers fought Bill Wallace. Um, one of them fought Demetrius Demetrius Havanas. Uh, but they, they were big kickboxers back in the day. So he saw me every day in the summer sitting outside the school. And he says, hey, ask that kid if he wants to vacuum the floors. So I went in. I vacuumed the floor really nice. And he says, if you do this once a week, clean this place, you can have free lessons. And that's how I actually started my lessons. That's fantastic. Yeah, Let's well, talk about UFC 1. So Horian gives you the invite. Yep. It's in Denver, Colorado, you know, higher elevation. How, how do you what's your communication like with our Davy um, matchmaking things of that nature bring us through the initial kind of connection with the UFC um well in, in the original they said uh, you know you want to do this I said yeah and so as they were booking the matchmaking everybody that they were getting was had a, a title in something and the only thing I had was point karate titles and I didn't want to use them because to me, it was I was going to look like, you know, people look at point karate as it's not real fighting. And I didn't want to use it because I didn't want to be essentially, I guess, laughed at. But I didn't want to use a point karate title, you know, so you want a trophy. But I could have used it. These guys all had kickboxing titles, uh, shoot boxing titles. Um, you know what I mean? If, if you're going into that realm and you say I'm a point karate guy, and it's too bad because I think Ray Wizard was one of the guys who had a point karate title. And uh, I'm not sure if Pat Smith had like a, actually his was Kyokushin, but I didn't want to use it. So they said, you don't have a title. If you could come up with something, we could put you in the main event. But if you don't, he's, he says, we're going to bring you in as an alternate. And if you win the alternate fight, you'll fight in UFC too. I said, oh, so I didn't want that. And they said, Originally, the alternates weren't going to fight. But the fights went so quick that night, Corian came out and said, come on, everybody's working tonight. So me and Trent Jenkins wound up fighting that night. If not, that fight wouldn't have happened. If those fights would have gone too long, they'd have said, oh, no need, no need. Okay. So you fight with Trent Jenkins. There, there's a misconception. Well, here, in modern-day mixed martial arts, the alternates fight first. In the UFC 1, they were still figuring it out. Were you the first fight in UFC 1, or were you right before the main event? No, right before the main event. So Told you, Miguel. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's how it happened. And, and so, like, when did you get informed that you were actually fighting? Um, it wasn't long before. It might have been just at just at the intermission, 
uh, or it might have been just like a fight before, but it was when they realized this, this card has gone too quickly. So that Horian came out and said, everybody's working tonight. So, All right. So you had mentioned titles were super important at the first UFC for announcement. I think that's where you, we come into the 150 and 0 and like the crazy, you know, European bare knuckle, you know, titles of, of, of events that may have may or may not have taken place. So they were almost encouraging you to come up with a, with a, with yeah, a title. Not, yeah, not in so many words, but it was, it was, look, if you can come up with something, you're in. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to do it. I couldn't bring myself to fabricate just to do it. But I figured, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I, I didn't want to use a, I didn't want to use a point fighting trophy. You know, I had a couple and I didn't want to use that as my, that's, that's my championship. Cause it, to me, it wasn't a, a real championship, but. It is what it is. Jason, can you tell us, um, like, what was the feel back? And you might have already covered this when I was gone, but uh, like, just the feel at UFC one. I mean, did anybody really understand what was going on there, what they were getting involved with, or was it all kind of, oh my God, what are we doing here? Can you give us like a description of how that was? Just even like the fighter man and all that type of thing. Well, I can tell you, I never, I never saw the caliber of fighters all in one room that I saw. Until that event, and I also never saw—I'd never been in front of a crowd like that. You know, I forget how many people were there, but like when, uh, for example, when Taylor Tuli fought and Gordo kicked his teeth out of his head, I was close enough to see his teeth fly out of his head, <laughs> and I saw the sponsors that were there for—I think it was World's Gym or Gold's Gym—get up and just be like, "Yeah, not not so much," and they walked out. Um, when Ken tapped Pat Smith, because he was a Denver native, the crowd erupted in bedlam, and all of a sudden, spitting, throwing, you know, I don't know if they were drinking, throwing cans, bear cans, bottle, I forget, but it, it, was, it was crazy. So then when I'm walking out, there, it's just as bad, because I'm fighting a Denver native. So now they're already pissed oh. off about Ken, yeah, about Ken and Pat. So it was just like, you know, blah, blah, blah. You could hear him just cursing us out, and I was like, this sucks. You know, in my head, I'm like, this, this is horrible. But that's the way it was. It was madness. I thought somebody was going to die that night just from audience and excursion, but it didn't happen. What about the original fighter meeting where the fighters were kind of angry because Horian had his brother voice in there as well as picked the referees. It was pretty much his tournament. There was almost a standoff. That's what at least Art Davey describes. Well, the, the, real, the real standoff happened. It got some intensity at a point where uh, Zane Frazier was asking some questions about the contract and Horian was trying to answer it. You know, he was, Horian was trying to explain to everybody, if you want this show to go big, you know, don't be a certain way. You know, if, if you just become a defensive fighter, the, the whole thing is just going to be boring. And, and he was trying to give everybody the, the heads up about, you know, it's a real deal, but don't make it suck. Um, and at some point, Zane Frazier became really concerned about something in the contract and about getting paid. And then Zane lost his, his cool for a second. He said words to the effect of, he says, I'm not signing any goddamn contract. And Horian stepped right in and went, it's not a god, like he was going to fight Zane right there. It's not a goddamn contract. So he was, Zane was doing a little bit of bickering back and forth. And uh, Hickson stood up for a second. And he had something to say, like, he was like, you know, if you want it, let's bring it on now. I'm in the back with the guy that I had with me. And I'm just watching this thinking, 
right? And Pat Smith was already kind of out of his mind. He was talking all kinds of crazy words. And I'm thinking to myself, this, this is nuts. And then uh, Taylor Tooley ended it all by standing up, you know, because they were bickering about little things that didn't really matter. And I, I didn't care. Taylor Tooley stands up. He says, more or less words to the effect is, I came here to fight. Signed a friggin' paper, and he he signed it and walked out, and that was that shut everybody up because, you know, they were bickering about stuff that, you know, somebody who's never been in the business wouldn't even know about, and I didn't. But you know, Zane probably looking back, Zane had a point about things. You know, how we how do we know this isn't gonna happen? That's not gonna happen. But Taylor Jason, Tooley said everything straight. That's an awesome story. That you know what I think it was. I think it was that there was no clear path. Like okay, so you win your first fight. You fight again. Let's say you lose that fight, but you've participated in a second fight. What's that compensation? That party's, you know, what's your compensation as the tournament progresses? We know the finalist wins fifty thousand. What about the semifinalist? Like none of that was defined in the contract. So I think, yeah, I think Zane was actually, you know, doing everybody a little bit of a favor. Maybe he was too ahead of his time. <laughs> well, it's it's funny you say that because I did a similar favor. I was conscripted for the ufcj and i was i was uh, being taken care of by pankers so that i had no vested interest like i wasn't getting money from ufc for doing it but in the fighters meeting i stood up for a few things that i knew had happened to me over time with you know the business and i only did it for the other fighters and i you know i could see the Meyerwitz and some of the guys were like you know they must have been thinking you know what are you complaining about you're not you, we're not even we're not even paying you you know somebody else is paying you. what do you care and mm -hmm. just at the time, only because I knew if if they did it to me then, I'm sure they're doing it to them now. So I just felt like I got to do something. I, I felt it. I did it. I didn't care. Let, let so, me take it back to UFC 1 if I can then. So in other words, uh, Ken Shamrock defeated Pat Smith, a Denver native. Yeah. And you faced off against Trent Jenkins, a Denver native. Was that what helped you make the connection to Pancrase and to Ken and, and those people? Is that how you got sent over there eventually? Or well, is there some yeah, there's this, this two things. Uh, first was um, Ken was looking. He was looking to procure fighters anyway. So that was part of his, his business. And the second thing was when I met Ken before the fight, I said to him, um, I said, watch out for uh, Hoist. I said, he's got a really good choke really good rear choke. And he said, ain't no 175 pound karate guy going to choke me out. And I thought, all right. So Bob, Bob Shamrock, who was like a father to me, he treated everybody like his kid. He was a really good man. That stuck in Bob's head that, uh, I, you know, I guess he respected what I knew. He respected that I said it. Um, and he liked me. In other words, he just, I think he thought well of me as a person. And he thought, this is a guy that we should give a chance. Um, and so Bob was was on me about, you really should do this. You really should do this. And at the time, I wasn't crazy about the idea of it. Uh, but over time, you know, he gave me some films. He says, check this stuff out and tell me what you think. And in those days, I couldn't get a job. So that was my next my next step. Um, but Bob, Bob was really the impetus for it. I mean, Ken, Ken wanted it too because he wanted to conscript fighters because he needed to build his uh, his base. But Bob was really the guy who said, "Take him." So to backtrack, Taylor Tooley, in typical Hawaiian fashion, he was just there to scrap. I mean, there was yeah. just something about people from that island, man. Po it really Polynesians, is. Polynesians, man. We 
week. Yeah. All right. Your pay as an alternate fight, was it different than the people that just competed in the first round? Well, I, for, a, for a fact, I know that some people got, like Art Jimerson got a ton of money just to show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gerard Gordeaux got a bunch of money just to show. I got, I think, it was fifteen hundred for the for the night, and that was it. That was okay. It. And what was it like afterward? Did you realize that you participated in something truly historic that would, I, I mean, be the pinnacle of combat sports? You know, years later. Well, all right. So after the fight, it was a great feeling. Obviously, you know, you're on TV. You can't believe you were even on TV. But at the same time. You, you, you don't think too much of it in, in the way of, you know, who's going to remember this. And then when we tried over the, you know, after UFC two, and we tried to get sponsors and things like that, and everybody was like, no way, no way. Cause everybody had it in their mind. This is nuts. This is bad. This is never going to go anywhere and look at it today. Um, but yeah, we, uh, we couldn't make headway in those years. You won with, against with the rear naked choke against Trent Jenkins. The term wasn't even coined yet at that time. Um, Did you have any groundwork in terms of like formable experience at this point, or were you just kind of making it up as you went? No, I had a judo teacher um, from when I was a kid that when I knew that I was going to do UFC one, I had to go and look him up and he was still training in uh, Kilkshin at the time. And I went, I found him, I told him what I was going to do. And I asked him if he would train me for it, and he agreed, yes. So I went back and trained judo uh, as intensely as I could in addition to you know, having to train everything else. Um, but I had some judo experience, but mostly for the stand-up, the throws, uh, the groundwork. So, so right after this, do you go right in with the lion's den? No. So UFC 2, Ken, Ken was supposed to fight in UFC 2. And I was on the card. I, I made the card by virtue of winning the ultimate fight. Um, and at the time, just before the fight, Ken broke his hand. So, I, and I found out only like days before the fight. Art called me, he said, did you hear about Shamrock? I said, no, he told me he broke his hand. So he needed to go to the fight anyway because Pancras wanted him to conscript fighters for Pancras. So he came out anyway. And when he came out, he had... Uh, I think he had some videotapes for me, maybe, I forget, but he spent some time with me. He trained with me, even with his broken hand. Um, he showed me some stuff. First time I ever felt an Achilles hold. Holy cow. Um, but, yeah, he trained with me a little bit, talked to me a little bit, kind of blew smoke into me, and uh, he said, what do you think? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. It's, I had enough time to think about it. Um, and then after that is when a few people, there was a guy, I think his name was Kiriyama, uh, did production in Japan and there were a few other representatives who there were reporters from Japan who said, you know, we, we want to see you over there, you know, make, makes you feel good. So really good. It, it looks like too, that Japan is going to be a match because like, like you said, Denver and UFC one, UFC two were a spectacle and that kind of was a turnoff for you. Meanwhile, over there, you get that whole respecting. Is that something that Ken also told you was going to be that way or did that just yeah, I, well, and that, and not only that. I mean, from watching the fights, you know, they gave me the tapes of the fights, and to hear twenty thousand people be dead silent 
and then only erupt when something spectacular happens, where in Denver, you couldn't hear yourself think and nothing was going on. I mean, it was just, it was bedlam compared to, yeah, in Japan to see that many people really observe something, you know. Um, it wasn't until mm -hmm. I had seen Pride events and, and K1 where I heard audiences erupt. It was like a different, uh, different genre. But for Pancras, mm -hmm. yeah, they were very um, studious about the sport. They really cared about what was going okay, on. Let's let's keep it on UFC too, Miguel. Um, so your first opponent is Scott Baker. He's like a Kato Gaku Kung Fu guy. You're a, I think, a five animal Kung Fu. Did, was there any like expectations or understanding of how this fight was going to play out? And so for me, he was, uh, I think he was billed as a Wing Chun stylist. But when he came into the ring, he was wearing a judo gi. So I thought, what's up with that? Right. So I see he's wearing a judo gi. And from what, what I gather, he was a wrestler. Um, I know that because, or I felt that because when I clinched with him, and I went to do the simplest of, of trying, to, trying to move him. I couldn't lug him. So what I actually did was I went to the ground. This is something I learned from UFC 1 from Kevin Rogier. I'll tell you that. But I went to the ground. I pulled him in top mount. And then I bridge and rolled him so that I could get on top of him. So I, I pulled him on top of him in a mount. And then I bridged him so that I was in his guard. Then I was on top. Um, it's the only way I could get him down because I, I couldn't physically move him. He was a lot stronger than I was. Now, now, with Baker, you seem to take your time and not stress your body out in order to save your hands and maybe yourself physically for the, the following round. Was that part of your strategy going into that? No, it, it was weird because at some point he actually fish hooked me. He reached into my mouth and fish hooked me. So we had a rule in the fight. You could eye gouge or bite, but you'd be fined 1500 bucks. <laughs> Even if you won the – yeah. So if you won the fight, you move on as the winner, even if you won by biting, but it costs you 1500 bucks every time you did an infraction. They didn't penalize me, but he fish hooked into my mouth. And when he did, I bit hard as I could so that he pulled it out. And then at some point when I got on, uh, I don't know if it was through his guard or I was mounted, but I headbutted his skull into the ground as hard as I could. And I felt bad after I did it because I was like, that could have killed him. I could, I could feel it. It was just nothing between him and my forehead. Uh, and I felt I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't like the feeling. There was no animus, no reason to do it. So, um, but I, I didn't pace myself so much because right away, we were only there a few days before, right away, I could feel the oxygen going out of my body. And then after that fight, um, I remembered I was in a stretcher for the longest time trying to get oxygen. I, I thought I was going to die. And I remembered Horian coming up and talking to my second. He goes, is he going to make it for the next, next round? And my second goes, yeah, he goes, good. But I was I was literally dying from altitude sickness. That sucked. Wow, wow. So going into Hoist Grace, your second fight, it was rumored that you were at this time a blue belt under Mario Sperry. Is there any truth to that? No, no. I've never met Mario Sperry. Okay, that's fair. So it's a rematch with Hoist Gracie. I think he held on to the. I shouldn't say. I think he obviously held on to the armbar. Um, for an extended period of time. Was there any bad blood between you two based on the fact that you, know, you had already done the Gracie Challenge against him? No, the, the weird thing that made bad blood, and I don't know, you know, it's, everybody's got their, their ethos, but after the fight, in that fight, when I shot him, I shot him with a sidekick, and he blocked me with a front kick, and he broke the little bone in my leg. 
the the one the you know fib tib the little one um tibia and so after the fight he saw me in crutches and when he saw me in crutches hey what happened i told him what happened and i said to him i says i want i want to fight you again and he got indignant he didn't like the fact that i wanted to fight him again i mean we're fighters isn't that what we want to do uh, but a- after that there was a period of time where it was just like i don't know what what it was but maybe you know from his his family's ethos has got to be that if anybody who wants to fight you is your enemy i just don't view it like that to me it's just a sport yeah i can see that i can like he he just beat you you want to fight him again you know it's you know the brazilian the brazilian machismo which man you know they're, they're world champions for a reason you know coming out well, of the country look at sure. penzo with his arm folded in half and not you know just looking at the ref i mean really <laughs> i got i'm sensitive to pain i hate it all right so it, when they were talking about yourself in ufc2 ken shamrock put his name on you saying I'm going to try to bring this guy to Japan. He's got a bright future. Did you join Lions Den at all in your career? I, I, I had figured it was right after UFC 1. I joined Lions Den after UFC 2. Okay. To fight in Pancras. Okay. Did, did you get jumped in? Um, wh- what do you mean? All right. So it's kind of uh, every beginning Lions Den guy says that there's a uh, a time where you have to get jumped in by somebody in order to be accepted oh, into mean, the like gym. Initiation? initiation? No, I did not initiate. Really? Yeah, I did not, and neither did Sean Docker, because we had been in UFC 1. They, huh. they already had an establishment, Mike, I think. That's what you do to brand new guys. Like, when you go over, like, in Pancrase, I know I went there. They had like the new boy, the young boys, and they treated like I wasn't like that when I went there. I was already considered elevated because I was already fighting for that. I'm sure it was the same thing with Jason. I mean, you know, Lions End was with that, you know, the Pancrase mentality. They already had that. So probably what they learned there, they couldn't do that to Jason. He's already fought in the UFC. Well, I, I think you you, know, you may be right too, is that part of it would be if if Ken would have given me the initiation that he or others would I don't think anybody else in there could have initiated me like that, but yeah. Ken could have. And those initiations made Rodney King look like like nothing. You, yeah, you wow. have to see, yeah, those initiations were frigging brutal, unbelievable. I I I I'm half torn. I like if I tell you the story of Frank Shamrock's initiation, it's I I don't know if I should, but I I kind of wish everybody would know because it was the most awful god awful thing and it was filmed and i filmed, hear it. I, I filmed it um really so scott Bissack, we had to I meet mean, just a little leeway scott Bissack, or segue i should say we had him on and he brought us through it and he said like the police should have been called scott Bissack was ken's number one initiator you could not tell his ferocity by his fight record but if you saw him initiate, and he initiated some guys who were Division One wrestlers, 220, 230. And he, there was one guy that he mauled this guy for 15 minutes on his back. And he, you could hear the guy's ribs crunching as he would hit him with elbows in the ribs. Scott was an unbelievably ferocious initiator. But Ken was the, Ken was the uh, he didn't want any of that. It was just, just unbelievable. So Frank Shamrock comes out of prison. Yeah. Um, 
Bob takes him in. Ken and Bob, like Scott Bissack told us, they didn't even know each other. They just, you know, had the one common person at Bob Shamrock. And so Ken, like he, he initiated Frank. How long did it go for? 20 minutes. And in the, in the, the, the whole thing started, Frank, when he, I first met him, had hair down to his ass. He looked like a Cherokee. And he started the fight with, he didn't know. He had no idea what was going on. He didn't even know what the word tap meant. So at some point in the fight, Ken grabbed him by the hair and broke his nose clean flat off his face like sideways. And so at one point he puts him down on the ground and he heel hooks him. And we're yelling tap. He doesn't know what the word tap means. He has no idea. He had no martial arts experience whatsoever. He turned it over, tore his knee out. You could hear his ankle popping. And this is five, six minutes into the fight. At some point, he chokes him completely out. While he's unconscious, I'm sitting there. He's right on the edge. I'm sitting on the outside of the ring. He's throwing up into his own mouth and choking, and he's passed out. So you can see my foot come into the camera, and I resuscitate him off his chest, and then I roll him over so that he doesn't choke on his own puke. He wakes up and finishes the initiation. It was friggin' unbelievable. Frank Shamrock is manly. You had to see, and that's not the most manly thing he did either. That's the, the, the messed up part of it. Frank Shamrock is manly. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It, it was it was so it was so bad. This is a kind of funny story. They all knew why the, the Lions then from Texas, they all knew, you know, it was a rough place. And they were rough too. When the first time I met Trey Telegman, I had I had lived there for a year in, in California at the Lions Den. And then when I came back, I was now going at once a month, every month from Massachusetts. But I would go out and visit periodically. So the first time I went out and I met Trey, have you ever seen Trey's got that dent in his chest? Of course. Yeah, he's got like a peck. Yeah. So when I met, I said, if you don't mind me asking, what happened to your chest? And he goes, when I initiated, Ken stomped me and caved my chest in. And when he said that, I went, that mother, because it's believable. And when they saw my reaction, they all laughed because they knew it's believable. So they all must <laughs> laugh and they're like, no, that's not how it happened. But it was, just, it was, yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. I, I don't mean to jump in. That's great. But I think Trey actually lost it at five years old. He lost his pectoral muscle in an accident. That's what, right, that's so. what he told me. That's what he yeah. told me. I, I it's think like a, right. like a paralyzed pectoral muscle. Good call, yeah. Miguel. Were you there when Jer uh, Jerry Bolander was cutting his teeth? I just got there. I, I came for a visit. That was the same visit I think I might have met Trey at. And I had actually rolled with Jerry, uh, Jerry Bolander a little bit. And he was not, he had not yet fought. But yeah, I, and I had seen him just for a couple of fights. I saw, I was at his fight in Hawaii. And uh, I wasn't there for when he fought, when he fought Gary Goodrich. I wasn't there for any of that. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah, now, real, real quick, when you guys were there, you know, early on with, the Lions then, did you guys really have a good sense, like, this is the best camp and one of the best camps in the world right now? You know what I mean? I obviously knew, you didn't even know the things going on in Pancras, but you knew, did you know how good you guys were as far as the sport went there, how, how kind of unique situation you guys were in? Yeah, you could, you could, Frank and I, we, we were as close as two people could be for, for a long time. And you, you would do this, you know, you would project your future. 
and you would see, you know, where you were and where things were going. And it was at its most organic state. Whereas right now it's, uh, it's, uh, oh, it's, what I'll say, homogenized. It's everybody knows what you got to do to get this thing yeah. done. Um, it, it's funny because you, you're a great example of that, Chris. When I met you, they had told me you were Tangsudo. You had, you had some traditional training. Little bit just from uh, one of my instructors was the Tong Sudo guy, but I was a wrestler and then it just yeah. And I but I knew my my wife was at that fight and my wife yeah. had, she she said, uh, do you do you think he's gonna go far? I says, I think he's gonna explode. And she goes, I think so too. Because yeah. there's at the organic level to have what you had, you know, to this day a lot of my students would ask me, Who what do you think it would take to beat Habib? And I says, There's two people that I know that have exactly the right makeup. It was you and Mikey Burnett. Wow, thank you. That's awesome. Yeah, no, for, for real, because it, it takes a certain – that type of fighter needs a certain intensity. You know, Matt Styles make fights. And oh, there's yeah. a certain intensity, and there's a certain uh, – it's a spiritual intensity, but it's also a technical intensity. You have it. And people go, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And at that level, back then, it was organic. So everybody came in. They were still a – you know, if you came in as a karate guy, you were a karate guy who was, had a minor in wrestling. If you were a wrestler, you were a wrestler who had a minor in jujitsu. Now everybody is, I mean, it's, it's equal all the way across the board. And it's just so high level um, that it's, it's something for, you know, I, I often think I saw that Roy Jones, Mike Tyson fight. And I thought it would be interesting if you got a bunch of guys that are in our fifties to go do a match, but only in our age group, because that's, that's too intense down there. Like the beat, the knuckles, that's crazy to me. I love, I love right now they're, they're, you know, some people are trying to bring back more of the pancreas now because to me, you get older fighters, that'd be perfect for them. You know, you don't want to do the elbows and the knee, you know, and, and the, the, the hard punches. But, I mean, the true pancreasian style was mainly submission-based, and it was considered rude to be even striking somebody hard. You know what I mean? So I think that'd go over well now with a lot of people. They still know the older fighters. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, the, the style that it is versus, I mean, for me, Ground and pound does nothing uh, to enhance the dignity of, of the sport. You know, a lot of people, oh, it's, it's, it's important. we got to keep it. It's never going away. But if you ask me, look at what submission is. You know, if you're a dominant wrestler, you already got the guy. What is the sense in pounding his brains in? You know, mm. it's martial arts. <laughs> if you want to do it the other way, it's martialism. And that's a different mm. book. But, you know, it is what it is right now. Your first fight in Japan, how, how does that – how does it happen? I mean, and, and if you look at your opponent, it's uh, uh, it's Funaki, the co-founder of Pancrase. So it, it's like it's a pretty tall order just to get to Japan at this time from the United States, and then to fight the co-founder of Pancrase. It's both an honor and a curse, depending on how you look at it. Right. Um, this sounds like Ken matchmaking. Yeah. <laughs> so I I had heard and. and I had heard just, you know, people uh, snipping about it, that he was supposed to initiate me in that fight. In other words, he was supposed to do, uh, drag me the whole distance to make it and basically work it. And I got lucky. So I think in the process of that, because a lot of people say, oh, it was a work, he put you over. Okay, you can say what you want. But I, I heard the snippets were that he was supposed to drag me out rope escape to rope escape. You know, he was going to tire me out and then maul me down. But it didn't didn't happen that way. Um, any truth to it? I have no idea. You know, that's just just the nature of the beast. 
Uh, you won by by uh, knee bar and uh, just over a minute. You yeah. guys actually fought three times. Um, you went one and two against him. Yeah. Leg injury and heel hook are your other two uh, outings against him. Um, what was your relationship with Funaki? Funaki is a very uh, distant character, and uh, he, he he's not he's not close with anybody in a sense. You know, when you're doing business, you're doing business. Ken used to say about doing business over there, when they want something, they're your best friend. And when they don't, you know, it's like they don't know you. And weird things would happen. I'll give you an example. Guy Metzger was fighting Boss Rudin, okay? And he was doing a really great job of dominating all aspects of the fight. And at some point in the fight, they were on the ground wrestling. The guy, guy could control Boss very easily. So... Funaki sends one of the one of the fighters out to tell our corner. And I don't want to say who, who the fighter was, but he, he says Funaki, he comes out and he says, Funaki said, tell guy to go for a knee bar. So okay, guy, go for a knee bar, go for a knee bar. So he goes for a knee bar and boss counters him and taps him out. Right, <laughs> right after the fight, right after the fight, boss stands up and says, I'd love to thank Funaki for working with me on the counter to the knee bar. Yeah. All business, uh, all business. That's that's the way shit rolls. Well, look at Chris Lytle is the only guy I know that they force fed. They made him eat bowl <laughs> after bowl of chunko to make weight. You know, cutting weight's one thing, but forcing a guy to eat to make him fatter, really? That is the craziest thing I'd ever seen. That was the worst, man. I couldn't eat any more. They were making me, they're like, you have to weigh this. And I was like, well, first of all, Phil's put me in the wrong weight class, but then and I had to gain like six pounds, and gaining weight's harder than losing. I couldn't do it anymore. It was so tough. I was like, "You can weigh less," and they're like, "No, eat." And I was like, "Ah." That was the hated. Thing. Yeah, they were horrible. They would do horrible things. I mean, it's just you know, it's the it, in, you ever see the episode of The Simpsons? Homer gets to Japan and he's got to make money to get home, so he does a game show. And in yeah. the game show, he answers something wrong, and the guy says, in your country, you reward knowledge. In ours, we punish ignorance, and they burn his face with a flame. Like, that's how they are. That's just how they are. What about your experience with Matt Hume? When you had fought Matt Hume, um, that, he had an interesting pancreas career. Go ahead. That, that was an interesting – it was a really good fight for me because Matt Hume was a, a really talented wrestler, and so – when we were on the mat, you know, if, if I'm fighting a wrestler, I, I, wrestlers are horrible when they're on top because their base is so uh, overpowering. It's so overwhelming that if, if you're punching me, it sucks. It's all day long. But because he was trying to do submission, he was patient, but he didn't know a lot of submission. So when he was on top, I could feel how he was using balance and control, much like an Aikido guy does. He's using, he's using mostly just his hands. Um, and I feel that with certain guys. I, I felt that with, with – uh, with you, I felt it with people where not really touching me. When I would move, you'd touch me. But if I if I didn't move, very light, like a spider's web. And that's how he was. He wasn't using overwhelming force. He was using all technique. Um, I think he he was more leery of me knowing submission because he knew he didn't know as much. So that gave me a lot of edge. Um, but if not for that, if it was a ground and pound, it could have been a very different thing. Because I know as a wrestler, he he had a better base. He also he also kicked me in the balls more times than anybody in one fight. <laughs> uh, you you're muted, Miguel. Oh, sorry about that. With the 
Ken Shamrock in, in, in UFC three, were you in his corner? Um Mike and Ken was fighting UFC three. Were you in UFC three with Ken when he pulled out of the tournament? Was was Kimo in that fight? Yes. Yes. Kimo yes, yes, I was. Yeah, I was in that, and I think I'm not sure if that's the one where I jumped the fence and John McCarthy yelled at me. I, mm-hmm. I jumped the fence to go in right after a, a fight, one of the fights, and uh, John McCarthy was like, get out of here. Now, wasn't that the fight where, where Ken said if he's not fighting Hoist, he doesn't want to fight and he just withdraws? That Was that what happened in that one? I think so, because Hoist had to pull out for, for whatever reason. When he fought Kimo, he yeah. couldn't continue. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So was, was Ken just like obsessive, I got to get this rematch with this guy? Is that what that was all about? I, I think I think it was um, there was a lot going on in his head. He had a lot going on at the time. In the early time when I had met Ken, in the time that I had spent out there for the year, he had uh, just reunited with his. I, I guess you would say his estranged mother. Uh, so he hadn't seen his mother since whenever. You know, uh, I, I forget what the circumstance was. And she looked him up, and they met. I met her once. And shortly thereafter, she died. Ooh. So, yeah, he had a lot of uh, he had just a lot of turmoil in his life that I, I remember going on. Um, and I'm sure a lot that I don't even know about. But uh, I, th- I think over time, it just it wears on you. And I mean, everything else, the, the stress and the pressure that the company puts on you. And he's he's representing two companies. So he's he's fighting for UFC. and He's also got to represent Pancras. And he can feel the pressures going on that because he told me when he brought me in. He gave me the, the lecture like Don Corleone to Michael, you know, like at, at this point, they're going to they're going to have a meeting. You're going to be assassinated. It was kind of the same. <laughs> they're going to squeeze me out. They're going to bring you in over time. You're going to notice there. Yeah. He told me straight up. He says, they're going to squeeze me out. They're going to bring you in. He says, and then they're going to be your best friend when they want something. And as soon as they don't like they don't even know yet. And then they're going to squeeze you out next. You know, he, he gave me the yeah, he gave me the straight. With UFC three, the, the rumor was that Bob Shamrock and Ken were having a pretty serious argument in the locker room. In regards to it, were you privy to that? Um, I was privy to a lot of what went on. So for UFC three, all I'll say is, and I, this is only my guess, and Frank and I had the same similar guess. We saw Bob on the phone, and his face was stressed red and all i could think of was that there was money on that fight that's all i could think of and, and frank was thinking the same thing hey don't know i don't know but that's that's all i was i was wondering about and yeah Fr- bob was not happy at that time he was he was uh really upset but at the same time i mean i'll tell you about the stress of it when we were down there training we we were training with uh I think uh, Jesse Ventura had a gym, not Jesse Ventura, um, the pro wrestler guy with the beard and the cowboy hat. Oh, damn. I can't think of his name. Anyway. Pro wrestler beard cowboy hat. Yeah. From California or Texas? No, no down in uh, Carol, uh, Carolina, Charlotte. Oh, damn. Not, not Jesse. Oh, shit. But if uh, I think Morton. I'll, I'll think of it 10, t- t- uh, 10 o'clock at night. But we trained in the gym, and when we were training, Ken Ken was just out of his mind doing stuff like. Uh, so he had me doing shoots on him, and when I shot, 
I shot low. He sprawled and he right in the back of my head with his elbow, right in the back of my skull. So I'm starting to feel like, all right, I'm going to throw up. I'm having a concussion. I go sitting on, on the on the dock and I'm sitting there and I can see Fernaki's looking at me like, you know, uh, I'm out there sitting and waiting. And then I hear Fernaki comes walking out. Same thing. He sprawled. He hit him in the back of the skull with his forearm. Um, he heard a couple other people in there. And that's just, you know, that's his mindset at the time. I don't think his mind was right. I think part of it was, I think he lost, well, okay, give you a good example. When he knew he was going to fight Hoist for one of these fights, I can't even remember which fight it was. We were training. And I, I told him about uh, Hadaka Jimei was you grab your gi from the front when you face a guy and you go like this and you choke him facing him like this. And so Fernaki said, I'm going to show you how to get out of this. He says, you be Hoist. I said, okay. So I got in Fernaki's guard and I put it on him. And as I put it on him, he pretended to go limp. And then when I let up, he exploded to get out. So when he did that, I put him out. And I think in Ken's mind, it registered as, if Furnaki can't get out of it, how the fuck am I going to get out of it? And I, I think a lot of things weighed in his mind that made him unsure. But I, I can't be sure. I, I know that like one of the things that made him crazy was uh, they went to Machado's school, him and Furnaki, and they trained there for a day you know, just as a, we're going to go have fun. And I think when they got schooled with the geese, I didn't think they realized, you know, how much of an art it is. Cause they used to joke <laughs> about, yeah, jujitsu is only this, it's only that. And they used to say, it's not submission. Well, I got news for you. Yes, it is. <laughs> so I, wow. I, I didn't really got it in his head. Wow. Yeah. Ken, Ken was pretty intense guy, you know, yeah. inside the cage and out. Yeah. Hey, I'm gonna stick my neck out there. Was the pro wrestler Arn Anderson? No, it was a really famous. Guy. He's dead now. Uh, damn, it. Dustin Rhodes? No, beard, uh, dark beard. Okay, Randy Savage. Oh, Randy Savage. Oh, oh, he's not a cowboy. But no, he wore a hat. Man, bro. But he wore he's a hat. hat. Cowboy hat. Oh, you know what? It was. You know what? Okay. Was, yeah. I, I like Macho King. That was my favorite version of Randy Savage, but you know, I digress. <laughs> did, he, did, he, did he show any interest? Did Macho Man show any interest in, in what you guys were doing and stuff, or was he not there? Only because I always heard the rumor that he was like, you know, he was one of the top stars, but at some point, like, he got pissed off at one of the other top stars, and, and he went after, I think it was Hulk Hogan. It may have even been like that level of stuff. Was he anywhere around what you guys were doing? I, I met him the, before we trained in his in his gym. Uh, we were training in one of the spas in the weightlifting gym, and I met him there. Me and Frank, we just talked to him for a little bit, and you know, he seemed like, you know, you guys, you guys, what you guys do is cool, but he didn't seem like he wanted to wanted to have anything to do with it. I just knew Ken knew him. Cool. And, uh, oh, he, he let us use his gym. It didn't seem like That's he was it. really uh, want to go that way. When did you decide to move to Japan full time? Um, I never moved there full time. So I used to go once. Yeah, I used to go once a month, um, one week a month. And then at the end of the first turn, after Frank, Frank first went there, he lived there for a month and then he debuted. And then after that, I wanted to go live there for a month and train. So I did a few years where I did a month and train. Then I started to do two months in train. And after so long, I, I didn't do it anymore. Um, but 
So I, you know, one week a month for, you know, the better heart, half of a decade, and then a month a year, sometimes two months a year, one time, three months a year. In fact, the, the, the time that uh, I met Chris was, uh, I was there for three months. Mm. Miguel, how many fights does Jason have in Japan? Uh, well, it looks like 50, exactly. I, according to, to the record that's official, obviously, we're not talking about all the like other, you know early stuff he was mentioning, but 33, 21, and 1. And I think we can count the, the five fights outside of the UFC. Uh, I'm sorry, outside of Pancrase. And then that would be 50 in, Pan, in Japan in Pancrase. Wow. And and he never lived there? No, not not full time. No, because it, I it, I do something, and I'll tell you I'll tell you the thing that I know. Just I didn't even know if my Seikendo match is listed in there, but this this is a true story. I I've told it before. I don't know if anybody wrote it down. So my last contract, my last full length contract in Japan, I get a call. I they had me train for a fight with uh, Suzuki. It was a catch wrestling match. So they had me train. I trained like a month and a half, I think, for catch wrestling. It might have been a month. I mean. But catch wrestling was basically pro wrestling, but real. So, okay, I did. The day before I left, I got a call, and he says, you have one more fight left on your contract in order for your contract to be complete. I says, yes, but there's also a stipulation in the contract that says, if by no fault of my own, my contract is not fulfilled. In other words, you guys didn't get me the amount of fights that my contract requires, it's not my fault. I'm at the end of my contract. I've got a, a week left, and I booked for this fight. And he says, well, we have a solution. There's a match in Seikendo. What's Seikendo? It's a Russian Thai boxing kind of match with throws and limited ground fighting, like 10 seconds on the ground. I said, when is it? He says, right after this match. I says, I've been training for a month and a half for catch wrestling. You want me to jump into a tie boxing match right after? Um, yes. And I was like, really? So the story gets a little weirder. So I says, okay, and this is not the first time this type of thing has happened with me, but I'll give you the, the short of it as quick as I can. Okay, I finished, I fight Suzuki and I beat him. And they said, okay, you got you know, a few days you can get ready for this fight. I said, okay. Fight time comes, and at that time in Tokyo, it's kind of cold. Um, Tokyo doesn't get freezing like Hokkaido, but it's cold. So he says, we've got to go to the gym to the gymnasium early. You gotta weigh in. I says, I'm fighting unlimited. What do I need to weigh in for? He says, because they need to weigh in. All right. So we go to the gym and it's like five hours early. And I weigh in. And so I'm sitting there in the gym. Nobody's there, just you know, whoever's milling around. And he says, the van is uh running, it's got the heat on. He says, if you want to go stay warm, go in the van. I said, All right. So I go down to the van and I'm waiting and I'm sitting and I'm waiting. All of a sudden, I feel like I got to fucking throw up. Van is parked against the wall in the parking garage. I get out, I go to the back of the van, I start throwing up. And as I look over, I see there's a end of a tuna fish can laid over the tailpipe. Van. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, so... What's your experience? Were trying to do something? Were they trying to kill you, or were they trying to intimidate you? What, what do you think? I think it's entertainment insurance. I wouldn't be the first guy. Andy Hook got whacked out in Japan. He showed up for a fight, and they said he died of leukemia. I think if you got died of what? Died leukemia. Of leukemia. That's 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 what they told me. That's not the only time that kind of thing happened to me, but that was the most 
obvious time because what you know what the well, hell did, did ken shamrock ever get poisoned before a fight in japan it's funny you say that because there was a fight that i saw him in i don't know it might have been fujita but there was a fight that i saw him in where i saw a reaction and he had to stop the fight and i saw the reaction on his face and i hadn't seen this fight till like the advent of youtube like i didn't know half of these guys had fought as many fights as they did till i saw youtube i was like holy shit and uh I, I saw the reaction, and I had the same reaction, I think, in the same match that night, uh, the Seikendo match. But I saw mm -hmm. it, and I was like, they poisoned him. So one time, you'll remember this, Chris. I, I won't mention the guy's name, but you, you'll remember by how I say it. One time, I, I got in the, the van. They were taking us from the airport to wherever. And the guy driving the van goes, would you like some water? And I said, sure. I took it, and I drank it. As soon as I drank it, it went through me. And I, I figured out later, and I can tell you how I figured out, but it's an even dumber story. As soon as it hit me, I went, whoa, and I leaned back, like rushed my guts out. And I looked over at the guy, and I started to become like, delirious. And he looks at me, and he goes, mm, do you feel like you've been poisoned? And I just looked <laughs> at him like, you mother. Yeah. You know, Man, what you, know what's, you know what's crazy about this is I – I'd always assumed since you were there so much and you had like a pancreas jacket, I, I always thought you were their guy. You know what I mean? I mean, I always thought I was the outsider, but apparently all the guys in are the outsider. I thought you were kind of like their adopted son because you were there so much. I thought you were immune to that, but apparently not. No, it all started to change when there was a, they call it a Jedi, a Jedi, it's a new, a new era. So all of a sudden the office people that we were used to seeing, all of a sudden, they had new office people driving the van from Hokkaido, uh, from um, Osaka. And there was all mm. kinds of different business plays being around. All weird shit started happening. So, you know, beyond that kind of thing, a lot of weird shit. But when it started to happen, everybody knows. Well, you remember Hasegawa? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dad? Fell out of a building. Figured yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. It happens. It happens. Yeah, happens. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, it happens a lot. It tripped yeah. and fell off a building. Yeah, <laughs> things happened. Yeah, I remember that was a big deal. I remember that was a big deal when that was going on. Like, oh, man, yeah. that's I didn't really put two and two together at first, but then after a while, I started thinking, okay, yeah. probably not an accident. Well, you spent so much. I apologize. Go ahead, Jason. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. All right. So you spent so much time in Japan. Do you speak the? Do you speak Japanese? A little bit. I, when I was there, I was fluent at a child's level. Okay. Um, but you could probably more understand it than you could speak. If I'm in an environment for long enough, like if after a few hours of talking to somebody, I get to a level where I can speak, they can understand me, and they know by my level how to speak to me so I understand them. But if you put me watching TV, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Okay. What was the mafia influence like in Pancrase when you were there? You're, you're only guessing when you, when you, you know, having been there so long, it's a lot like this country. Like, who, who runs the garment district in this country? You know what I mean? So when you see a person, what business are you in? I'm, I'm in this business. All right, I get it. So, like, the guy who ran our ring company, um, I don't know, Chris, if you remember the guy who used to set up the ring, he was actually, I think he was Manoa's uncle or something. Uh, but he was missing a pinky. <laughs> You'd see these guys around, and different guys from different places. And sometimes I had... I, this is this is one really really weird story. It just sticks in my head when you ask about it. I fought Bob Steins 
the hardest punch I have ever been hit with in my life almost killed me. Before the fight, I had never really been put out like this. But before the fight, this Japanese guy comes up to me with an old flashbulb style camera. He goes, picture please. And right away, I was like, wow, that's messed up. I found out later that's only one of many uh, gimmicks. So years later, I fighted Frank Shamrock's shootbox. And the guy who's going down there with me, I tell him the story about, I, you know, he's asking about, you know, the various things, how they work you, how they mess with you. I says, and watch out for the guy that comes up to you with the flashbulb on the camera. He says, they strobe your eyes out and you're more susceptible to knockout. And he goes, wow, really? I go, yeah. I swear to God, it's the same freaking guy. We're behind the bleachers getting ready. Guy walks up and I said, he goes, pitch a freeze. And I looked at Joey and he goes, holy shit. I said, get out of here. Don't fucking bother me. But that's that's the kind of shit. So when you say about when you say about the mob, over there, Pachenko is their gambling. But because yeah. gambling is illegal, you don't get money. You win a bunch of balls. You take them to the guy at the counter. He gives you a bunch of pencils. Cool pencils. You go outside and you go to this window and you say, You want to buy these pencils off me? Oh yeah, that's uh, three hundred dollars worth of pencils. <laughs> because gambling is illegal. Yeah. The fights are kind of the same way. If you want to make money in fights and you know the right people, you can make money. But it's the don't ever say it kind of thing. You know, they're, mm -hmm. they're everywhere. They're everywhere. You put out a catch DVD, and in it, you had mentioned that you had trained a world champion but never got credit for it. You never named that world champion. Um. All right. If, if if the perspective the perspective is funny and but at this point it really doesn't matter. When Frank Shamrock came to the Lions, then Frank Shamrock didn't know anything. Ken was our teacher, but well, that's that's confirmed. Yeah, but that's I was absolutely Frank's true. Yeah, yeah, I was Frank's teacher, and that's you know I don't like to say it because it looks like I'm trying to take somebody's thunder, but no, I I kick the shit out of Frank every day of his life until I left. And you know, if you it, it's it's not to demean him, and and the reason I say that is, it, it's he became much bigger than I ever was. Much like Chris, Chris is if if you put me and Chris in a room right now, he would walk all over me. That's how much bigger than me he grew as a martial artist. And Frank was the same. Frank went through, and I'll tell you this story because it's I always wanted to tell it, and I it's one of those things like I didn't want to mention about prison with him because I didn't think he'd want people to know. But I told him this story he should tell. Like he should write a book. This should be in it. There was a time when he was fighting Suzuki for the title. And personally, I think Ken was jealous. The night before we left, Ken goes, come on, Frank, you got to go to the gym and callous up. Takes him to the gym and beats him barefisted and breaks five or six ribs all over his body. Yeah. The night before... Frank's fight, I'm in his hotel room with him. And you know when bones break, in general, for most people, within the first day or two, you calcify. You get these big lumps and wads of calcium. So I go, what are you doing? He goes, I'm, I'm setting him. And I'm literally helping this kid. He's got all over his body broken ribs. I'm, oh, my God. Yeah. In the calcium deposits, I'm putting his ribs back in place. Click, 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 click. click. And he held it together, fought, and won. Wow. Right. 
I've never seen anything like that kid in my life. I mean, I've known there's all kinds of manly. And when I say, you know, manly, it, it's beyond me because I'm a pussy. When I, I'm really sensitive. <laughs> it's true. When I feel pain, I can't, I can't hold it back. Some people can shut it off. I cannot. I feel it. Um, and he did it. And, and I don't know that he didn't feel it. I think he's like me. He feels it. And he just went, I got to do it. Because if I don't, Bob's going to kill me. That's just the way it was over there. You've got to do it with Bob said so. Okay. Do you think interactions like that kind of forced Frank to leave, or was Ken ever going to accept him as a training partner? What was that chemistry like? All right. So I'll give you an example. People, people, I, I get pissed off because, like, I saw this one English commentator that my fight somewhere was online, and this English commentator, yeah, this he starts like he's talking nice about me, then he does this passive aggressive talking shit about me. I feel like, no. I wish I could meet this guy in person, push his ears together, maybe twist his head around. Um, so this is the kind of thing Ken would do. I fought Boss Rootin the first time, and I was utterly scared of Boss Rootin. He was just, he's a Neanderthal. I did not want to fight him. I so so him. let me set the table. It's October 15th, 1994, Road to Championship 5. It's your first bout with Boss Rootin 6, our next fight that we're talking about. Go ahead. Correct. So in the fight, and, and I was justified, too, because at some point, you know, when he grabs you by the neck, you realize this guy could break my head off. He's strong. Before a fight, I tell people this. Before a fight, you see the roadie ladders that they use for the lights? He climbs this roadie ladder 20 feet up, all the way up, all the way down at the bottom, one-handed chin up, with his legs <laughs> in a split. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, I fought him the first time, and at one point in the first fight, I get him to do a rope escape. I heel hook him. I have really good heel hooks. He grabs the ropes. Okay, so not long after that, I'm going to fight him again. Before I leave for Japan for the next fight, they tell me, you're going to fight him next time. And Funaki comes up to me, another classic Funaki. He goes, you know, do you know your strategy? I go, yes. He goes, what? I go, heel hook. He goes, good. I go, okay. I go home and I'm training. And I've got fucking heel hooks coming out of my head. I get to the L.A. airport, and Ken looks at me, and he goes, heel hooks are illegal in this fight. They've made them foul. Yes. What? Yeah. Like, when were you going to tell me? You know what I mean? Why? Because if I win, that puts him down a level. He didn't want that. You know, mm -hmm. I appreciate everything Ken did for me, but he also did some things that I don't appreciate too much. And, but I get it. It's business. He's got to look out for his own interests. You know, but no, no I mean, reason. Not. Yes, I know, but when your teammates, usually that's out the window. You know what I mean? I mean, usually we're a teammate. You know, usually throw down the ladder once you've reached the top to help get them up, not kind of cut the ladder off so they fall. You know what I mean? Well, I, I didn't get why, for example, in the UFC that was in Detroit, he came up to me before. He says, You see now. Okay, so Ken comes up to me and says, Art Davey and um, uh, whoever else, they, they want to talk to you. They want you back to UFC. He says, you can do it or if you want. He says, but uh, his his view was he wanted to be the UFC guy and I would stay in Pankos. I said, all right. So I agreed to it. So when they asked me, we'd like you to come to UFC, I said, no, thank you. I says, I'm happy in Japan. And that was, that was between them. I had no problem doing that. Well, later on, when they did to him what he knew they were going to do, they squeezed him out. I didn't join Lions then to fight MMA. I joined Lions then to fight in Pankers. 
And when they asked me to stay with Pancras, I said yes. And he got incensed. All right. You know, it is what it is. You're the one who told me to stay in Pancras. I, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Sounds very unreasonable, man. Yeah, well, it was it was a bit. It was a bit. He kept a you know, lot of plates in there, but it's, I wanted to ask you, is, is the, you know, Ken's a very complicated figure, so you can't wrap everything around, but do you think he had, like, a mean streak gone wrong? Because the story you tell about Hurt and Frank, you know, there's also a story that he knocked out Mikey Burnett, like, a week before his world title fight and stuff like that. That kind of need to express yourself like that in the gym and really dominate at certain level with teammates. It, it, I, a guy like you, I would think would view that as unnecessary and, and distasteful. Am I wrong? Um, no, that's, that's correct. I mean, I, the, he had me initiate a guy one time and this, a few times with the one time I hit this guy ultra hard uh, palm style on the side of the jaw and neckline and his eye dilated to the size of his iris. And you could see, I, so he said, he said, put him out. And I had already put this kid out a few times. I said, no, and this is in the middle of the initiation. He goes, what? And I walked up to him very softly to his face. And I said, his eyes dilated. If I hit him again, he's dead. He says, don't ever contradict me again in front of the, da, 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 da. I was like, I don't care what you say. I mean, doing it. <laughs> you know, they're like, what were you thinking? But Chris, you know, remember the dojo in Japan? Oh, yeah. Remember those pictures of those two young boys? You know what happened to them, right? I've heard at least one of them, but not all of them. Well, both of them were whacked by the same guy in training. Let's just put it that way. I know that was. Man, now, now, speaking of that place, I mean, you know, I still have, I mean, that I was still very new when I was training there. I remember uh, it was a 99. I went and stayed there for uh, about a month and a half. And, uh, you know, still have uh, very good memories of, of, of living in that dojo for a month and, and, you know, going down, you know, walking down to the bathroom, you know, 100 meters away or whatever. Yeah. Just, uh, did, did you stay in that gym a lot? Is, was that where you stayed or did you stay in the one in Tokyo? Um, no, I was always in the one in um, uh, Yokohama, Yokohama. Okay. When I would when I would live at the dojo. The time that I spent three months, I actually lived at a friend's house. Okay. And the Yokohama dojo was yeah. When you were getting earthy, I, yeah, that that was the crazy place. If you yeah. stayed there, you were you knew what it was. Oh yeah, yeah. Love. Did you ever interact with Ensign Enue when you were when you were in Japan throughout your travels? Funny, funny that you should say it because. It was, I think it was UFCJ. Um, I had, I had seen Ensign. I had known, and this was after he fought Frank, but I had seen him, known about him. Um, and for whatever it was, I, I forget. Uh, but when I saw him at UFCJ, I believe it was, he looked at me and I looked at him and he just reached down the stairs and he shook my hand. And that made me really happy because for whatever it was, I think he felt, I kind of felt the same thing because we didn't know each other. But people are always trying to cause trouble, and we were like, I don't think he was like that, you know. Uh, but you know, I don't know him. I just just that one time, he just reached out and shook my hand. And I appreciate it because you're never sure of who's thinking what, <laughs> and, especially from opposing teams. Yeah, try to keep all your fights in the ring, not yeah. a, not in the locker room. <laughs> try not to. What, what was your relationship with Masakatsu Funaki? 
um, it's a dis it's a distant relationship with him. I, I uh, you know, I I don't understand. I I don't understand when somebody is in a position where they should be closer than they are. But he was a, he was a weird. There was a one time, uh, Chris. You remember Shibuya? Yeah. One time Shibuya had come back from Holland, and when he came back from Holland, he was he looked just like the Predator in the movie The Predator. His body was just freakish. So at the time when I looked at him, I said, uh, I says, he looks just like I was eating across from Funaki. I said, he looks just like a praying mantis. And so Funaki calls him over and I don't catch it right away. I'm sitting back and I'm just eating. And I look over my shoulder and Shibuya had come up and he's standing like this, in a <laughs> full-blown praying mantis pose for the mm -hmm. entire time that we're eating. And it was just like, wow, that's messed up. And it, he made that, that's the kind of like one time in the dojo in the morning, sleeping in the, you know, the little the, the shells that we sleep in. Yeah. I hear this noise. It's like four in the morning, five in the morning. And I'm like, what the hell is that? I go out there and Fudaki's got two of the young boys in the ring. They've juiced themselves, cut themselves on their forehead and they headbutt each other. Boom. And the ring is covered with blood over and over. And I'm like, yeah, right. I don't know. Man. I remember when I was staying there, they had, you know, a couple of the young boys, you know, and they were training. I just remember, like, Suzuki choking one of them pretty much, and he's tapping, you know, and he's not letting go until he's almost unconscious and he's barely moving. And then he's, like, slapping him and keep going. You know, I was like, I was getting kind of upset about that. And then when the kid got out, like, he's yelling at the other young kid and, like, hitting him in the head. And I was, I was getting pissed off with that. I didn't really understand the whole hierarchy situation of, their culture and, and it was a very good learning experience but man i got pissed off a couple of times at how they did things i was thinking man but you know what they had like three ten, uh, three of these young boys and i come back about two months later there was only one left and he became a tough fighter like the other two they weeded out they're like we're not dealing with these guys if we're not mentally and physically tough we're gonna push you out and that's what they did so it was it was an interesting learning experience but and now jason i i was there a long time I felt like it was some different fights. I, I I really liked some of the guys. Who do you feel like you were close with from the uh, the Pancreas organization, the fighters? I, and including, you know, so when you hear me talk about Ken, I can focus on that and, and show that part of him to you, but I really appreciate everything he did. Who I, I really loved, I mean, I was I was as close as could be with Frank Shamrock when, when we were there because we lived together. And I, I was with him through some really, you know, messed up times and, and stuff like that. Um, I, I really, uh, I love them all. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing that we're all still alive. Um, <laughs> I have, I have fond memory, memories of, of everybody that I can think of, who, especially who I learned from, like Maurice Smith. To this day, I, well, I, I, I work with Maurice sometimes. He's, he's doing extracurricular activities outside of, of sports. Uh, but Maurice, as a, as a teacher, there's a guy who could spend five minutes with you in the lobby of a hotel and teach you more about Thai boxing than you ever knew. You know, it's amazing. And um, his spirit, I, I love his, you know, he's, uh, it's, it's something to be a, a true gentleman and be able to turn it on and be something that's that fierce. Whereas some guys, you know, the way they are in the ring, that's kind of how they are on the outside. I don't like that so much. Um, but, you know, I, I have fond memories of everybody just in, you know, everybody in, in their own life. And it's just the way you look at it. 
Wow. Now, let me ask what, you, in terms of in Japan, Funaki, you said he was distant, and, and thank you very much for, you know, the stories there. Now, but did they ever, like you, I would have thought when he went over to do MMA and they were setting up the Hickson fight, that you were there, would it, you'd be a natural to spar with him to, you know, maybe give him some insight into, into Hoist and Hickson and stuff like that. Am I way off? What were you doing during that uh, that period of the crossover to, to MMA? A couple of weird things at the same time happened. So I did train with him a little bit before the fight. Um, and that was one of those. We were training in the uh, Daido Juku used to have these helmets that had plastic across the face shield. And we were training in those. And he grabbed the back of the helmet while I was in his guard. And he held the back of the helmet, just kept punching me in the back of the head. While holding the helmet, and I'm like, "What the fuck, what the fuck are you doing? Is it, this isn't gonna help." <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm literally kneeling on his chest, punching him in the head after the because when he did it, I was pissed off, and I passed through, and I'm I'm just sitting on his chest throwing punches at him, like, "What what is it? What what are you trying to prove? Dan damaging somebody?" Um, after that, I was supposed to be at that fight, and everything was booked up, and then shortly before, I got a hey, you've got to do this thing. It was from the office. You've got to do this thing at such and such a time, and it was not going to allow me to make the fight. And I was like, all right. I says, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be there for the fight then. I can't be too, I can't be two places at once. Um, okay. And then I saw a magazine and in the magazine, when you opened it up to the centerfold picture, it was a picture of all the Gracies with me somewhere in this, almost in the center but in the back, like you could see my face with all of them. And I think I was even with Carlos Valente. But it was the weirdest thing. And I think it might have spooked him to think maybe, you know what I mean? So I, I don't know. I don't know. Might have spooked somebody. Um, okay. But yeah, when that happened, uh, that, that, was a, that was a tumultuous time anyway. There was a lot going on. There was a lot going on. I don't think anybody else. Making my head a little shaky. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you very much for the uh, honesty, Mike. Yeah, Miguel. One of the questions that you've asked other people, you know, from that the Japanese lineage or people that have been involved with it, was Gerdo. When he, when he, you know, he he would brag about sticking his thumb all the way up to the last knuckle into the eye, and. Um, was there any threats on his life or any repercussions in regards to to doing that? Um, I never heard anything about it, but I had heard that when he would come to Japan, who was the guy that he fought? I can't remember his name. Well, the guy that he did that to. Japanese. Little time, yeah, the little guy lost an eye. What was the guy's name? Yeah. Lost a tie? I can't even remember. But I more time ago. I had heard that when Gordo came to Japan, that he would have to escort him around. I heard that too. Yeah. Man, that's brutal. Yeah. yeah. Imagine, but that's, yeah, they have some weird, weird goings-ons over there. What was your relationship with, like, Manabu Yamada? I know you had fought a couple times. Um, he and I got along really well. Um, as he started to get to retire, he, uh, Kind of changed a little bit, got got a little weird, but I think he was weird with everybody. But I, I liked him. He he was a little bit um, hippie, kind of. You know, he, he seemed uh, 
and say positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I guess, I guess. But uh, I, I, he was a lot of fun to be around. He was, a lot, he was fun to work with when you trained with him. He, he, would, he would try anything new. He would do anything that he wanted. Minoru Suzuki, you had fought yeah. him a couple times as well? Yeah. Um, Suzuki was another uh, kind of weird, um, you know, out, outside. He's, he's great, great to talk to and stuff, but in the dojo, a little bit, little bit weird. Um, to get drunk yeah, with those guys. Heard, I was just going to say, we've always heard between him and Funaki, Suzuki's the mean one. He's definitely in the dojo, the mean one. Funaki is, is, is a civil character in the dojo. He trains hard, works hard, but not cruel. Suzuki could be cruel um, to the point of, I, I tell you stories, but I, mean, I don't want to degrade people who have been through the, the, the horribleness. Um, but yeah, he's, he's a little bit of a sadist, a little bit of a... And you know, you know, with those guys, too, I think, and this is what I was learning, I, I feel like a little bit of the hierarchy we talk about. Fanaki and Suzuki were up here on the hierarchy, so maybe they didn't feel like they could socialize as much with someone like me. Or I mean, every, every time I, I, I know what you mean by distant to me. When you say they were distant, like they would be kind to me, but there was there was never like a friendship that you know it was like hey Chris, you know that was it but it was never on the, I, I was like they were up here and you were kind of on a lower level fight and that's how I felt about it. Yep. No. Same. 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 And in, in as much as in as much as um I you know the the side of themselves that they show to me to you it's amiable um but it's not uh you could just can tell it's not close. And yeah. I think it was. I think they were like that with each other. I, I think uh, the, the rumors that I hear is that uh, Funaki was not maybe so crazy about Suzuki. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, whoever's going to see this, it is what it is. These are the things that I, I gather. I mean, other, other stories like I'm hesitant. There's a lot of things I'd like to. Oh, if I told you this, you'd get that, but I don't want to say it. Um, okay. We're going to keep chipping away. <laughs> this is priceless stuff because no, I love it. This is about Chris said, look, we got to document history. These stories are going to be lost. So everything you said is go as good as gold here in our book, man. Thank you. Thank you for opening up to us, man. Yeah. You know, Jason, this isn't a beginner's podcast. So it's like anybody that's, we, we've got a pretty hardcore following. And it's because of things like this. You know, it's you know, people, I mean, we're here. My next question, uh, Ryushi Yanagisawa. I mean, it's another legendary Japanese fighter. Never made his way to the mainland here in the United States. But if you look at the guy's record, he's, it's a who's who. Yeah, he's, uh, that's another one. Until YouTube, I think he fought Fedor for rings or something. Yeah, it was huge. Right. And, and to me, I was like, I'd never even heard of it. I had no idea that it happened. Um, but he, he was a guy, and to know him, um, been through a, a little bit with him, to know him is to love him. He's a sweet person. He's, he, oh, here's a good example of the, when you say about cruelty. He was in a match with Ken, and Ken heel hooked him, tore his tendons right off of his knee. So he basically separated his upper and his lower leg. So they had to use the Achilles tendon from a dead man to reattach his leg, right? When we were training for one of those fights, I don't think I was there when it happened. That's so brain, brain did we all are. I don't know if I was there when it happened, 
but train was training with him and this is well over a year because it took him a year of shooting full of drugs to make this thing heal right Ken was training for UFC and Ken did a, a we call, used to call it a kneecap and you only do a change of level and you buck the guy's knee backwards when you do your shot just like that and he bowed the same leg backwards and nearly destroyed him and I'm like why you know why but that's, that's <laughs> the way it was and he was he was the kind of guy who he never that kid never deserved that kind of like you do that to somebody who deserves it, not to somebody who doesn't. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He was he was a, a really nice, nice person. <laughs> We've been told that you had a, like a very close relationship with Yuki Kondo. Yes, and you guys had fought twice. Would you would you mind expanding on that? Um, Yuki is a is a old school samurai, and he came and lived at my house for. Three months, yeah, three months solid. So he came to the states. Yeah, yeah. And where did you guys train at? Um, I had a dojo in one socket, but I also took him to my lairs where I I would train in the woods. I would train uh, in the cemetery at night. I would train all hours of the day because when you do so much traveling over there, like my sleep has never been the same. I I, I tell people this. I experienced my birthday two days in a row, two years in a row. In other words, I lived 24 hours over there on my birthday, flew back here and had another 24 hours on my birthday. That's how, how messed up it gets. So when we trained, I would try to train on their time. So whatever Japanese time is. So I would train all hours of the day because I couldn't sleep. And the other thing, when you travel that much, Chris, you must have gone through this. How many days did it take you to get a night's sleep after you come back? Because the jet lag going out is bad, but coming back the next week is worse. And uh, you're never the same if you do too much of it, you know, thrombosis and all the rest of it. But um, so he trained with me whenever I said, we're going to go do this, he'd go do it. And he, I would do old school training. So we would do things. They actually came over and did a special and they recorded us. We did some uh, old school kendo and bojutsu. We fought with sticks in the cemetery. Um, <laughs> the Japanese people, when they saw it, they're like, you really do that? It's like, you saw it. Yeah. Yeah, we, <laughs> we did. um so the very first day that he came to train, he came over. The plan was he's going to be here three months. And he was planning to fight UFC. And they wanted me to train him. And I said, okay. So he had already fought me and beat me in a pancreas match, 30-minute long match. So when he came over, part, I think part of his head, he was thinking, you know, like, I beat you. you know, what are you going to teach me? So he didn't realize the difference between sport and – so I said, okay – we took a few days rest. I said, whenever you're ready, we're going to go start training. So I had a, my crew of guys that trained, and I told them, don't be hit there that day. I said, they got something special going on. Okay. So we went to the dojo, and I said, okay, today we're going to do UFC training. Okay. I said, uh, so we're going to do a fight right now. No rules at all. You understand? Yes. So a little bit of Japanese, a little bit of English, but he understood. I said, okay. I'm going to start the timer. You ready? Yes. I start the timer. And I walked up to him and he walked up to me and I just unloaded on him. It was over in 10 seconds. He was choked out. And when we were done, I went and I looked at the thing and I said, I showed him the timer. I says, as of right now, I'm going to call Japan and tell them you can't fight because he was slated to fight USC when he came back. In fact, I think the fight he had was Tito Ortiz. I'm not even sure. Mm. I can't even remember. But that match was eye-opening for him because 
he figured I, I fight pancreas. That's fighting. No, it's not. And you know as well as I do, right? Every everything has its has its nuance. So that moment was, and I wasn't nice. I wasn't kind at all. When I lit up. I just lit up. I went from like we are now to a serial killer. I think part of that was what, what he didn't get was like, oh my god, I never, you know, had anybody turn on me like that. Yeah, that's what's going to happen when you do it. And, and I believe I think he he went over his first fight in UFC. I think he won a very impressive fight, and then I thought he fought Tito the second time and lost that. I thought I think I, if I so remember, I don't right know. Now, I thought he not- yeah, the fight that he fought. Remember when Fanati fought Hickson? Yeah, he fought Hickson's number one guy on that card, but I don't know if that was a UFC, was it? No, that was not. But he did fight in UFC. I thought once before, and then I thought he won, and then they gave him Tito, and he actually knocked Tito down with a jumping knee, and then Tito just mauled him because he's too big and strong. Like he was like way underweight, I think. But yeah, most Japanese fighters they just they don't have the ability to, or I think knowledge or wherewithal to cut weight. Cut weight, cut weight. They didn't have to cut weight. They were all heavyweight. I mean, it was an open weight class forever. You know what I mean? So it was just a different. They didn't have that in their wheelhouse. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't really get that until I fought Bob Steins. I'm thinking, I'm used to fighting everybody any size. And when that guy punched me, I was like, holy shit. <laughs> 260? <laughs> holy yeah, shit. That's Let, let's difference. talk about Bob Steins. Uh, April 30th, 2000 at Pancreas. Bob Steins, he's from Warren, Ohio. He's got a, a three-in-one record. I mean, it's he's got to win over your, yourself, Jason, as well as Dan Severn. I haven't seen the Dan Severn fight. It might be a little iffy, but that guy is, in my opinion, uh, he, he makes my greatest what-ifs. You know, um, he's just one of my top three what-ifs fighters is Bob Steins. Well, I, I, I had to actually go up to him after the fight and ask him about his lineage. I says, I says you're not just some boxer who came in here and knocked me out. He goes, no. He says, I'm, I'm a um, karate. I think he was a fifth dan in uh, in uh, karate, and because his technique was such, and I, I can tell you this by uh, another experience, Ian Freeman, who knocked him out. Yep. Ian Freeman. Every I, I fought in England with uh, you were there. You, you were at England when I met up with him in England. We were talking about it, and because I had heard that he had said this, Bob Steins had the freakiest when he hit you. You you couldn't see the punch. And you saw a blue flash, like, and it was traumatizing. So the first punch that he actually hit me with, he, I, I shot in with a, uh, like we call a Y Bob, you know, hopping in with a, a straight left, and I hit him. His punch glanced off my body, and it felt like somebody swung a lead baseball bat into me. It only hit me like off the shoulder, and I was like, right away, I was like, holy shit! I'm 185 pounds. This guy's 260. He's a monster. Yeah, yeah and and knows how to punch the second the one he finally hit me was he cursed it he glanced it off my neck so like basically a brainstem and i felt it the next day but he glanced it off my neck and on my way down he he tapped me i guess back of the head but when he put me out through the neck it was like being shut off in a plane crash just going Mm. from where you are to nowhere nowhere versus i had another time when i got knocked out and i saw the back of my head from eight feet away and I saw everybody in the arena. I'm not shitting you. I <laughs> back into my body, and I it was Yamamiya. If you see that fight, I get up, and I just start fighting. Ah! Out of my mind. Out of my mind. Wow. Man, uh, I was actually at that fight when Ian Freeman uh, fought Bob Stein. I mean, and I'll tell you what, Ian was hurt that fight. Like, he got cracked, and he wasn't ready for it. And then 
he just landed a real good punch on Bob and put him down. That, that was it. I mean, I remember I talking to Bob. He was a nice guy. I, was he from Ohio? I thought he was from Tennessee. But anyway, nice. yeah, he, he was a big, strong guy. He could hit. He, you know, Chris, on a sure dog, it says Warren, Ohio. I know nothing about him. I don't know what Jim. I even sent Coleman and Sims a text. I figured if he's a heavyweight from Ohio, they got to know him, especially that era. Neither of them knew who he was, so he might. I be didn't think he was from there, really. I don't, I don't remember that. But I, 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 I'm going to jump in with another Pancras name before we. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it was it a Takahashi who was the first Pancras guy in, in like Japanese Pancras fighter in UFC. I, I think he's the one who beat Walid Ishmael. Yeah, beat Hoist. Hoist, yeah. Hoist, Hoist got choked out by Walid Ishmael in a jujitsu tournament. Yeah, and I think right after that. I think that's the order. I think right after that, Takahashi fought Walid Ishmael. Because yeah. I think I fought Takahashi right after Walid after he fought Walid Ishmael. Okay. Takafumi Ito, another Japanese legend. Love that kid. Love he had him. a couple couple mix-ups with him, too. He's, he's the kind of – he's impressive to me for the simple technical factor and visceral. His, his heart is so strong. He took me running. I used to run – I thought I was a serious runner. He took me running after training one time and oh my God, almost murdered me. I had to stop. I it never really stopped that way. And I was like, all right, I, I quit. I quit. He did it. But fighting that kid, he was much smaller than me structurally. But when you wrestled with him, he was like a swarm and, and an artistic swarm. He wasn't just hold you down, but he was another one. You could feel him. He's just Holding contact points, let, not letting you move. And when he would swarm around, it's like, oh, my God, will you just let me up? You know? And he could do it with much bigger guys. Um, I was there when he fought uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, were you there for that, Chris? He I shot saw him fight Yanagazawa, who was about 100 pounds bigger than him. But Well, Kim Jong-un was – he's got to be three-something. Oh, that's the one. You remember he shot in and he kicked him right in the face on a single leg shot and knocked all his teeth out. Oh, it was, it was horrible. But that kid was that was that was the kid that Funaki would tell him, go do a thousand squats and he would just go do them. It didn't matter if he was at a dinner table. Too. He would do a thousand squats. Holy shit. But yeah, nice, nice kid. I spent a he, lot of time with him. He was one of the guys, I remember when I was staying there, you know, he, he was a good guy to kind of hang out and talk to because a lot of guys didn't speak much English, but he wouldn't be good and he was a good guy to work with, and he, and he was probably the only guy I was bigger than there. So it was nice. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about Japan when UFC went to Japan. UFC 23, you fought Joe Slick. Joe, obviously, recently, I shouldn't say recently, passed a few years ago. I, I think he's one of those underrated entry level, like in terms of mixed martial arts fighters. I, ironically enough, Ken, so I, I, you know, we had the falling out when I left. Uh, Lions then, but when they came to UFCJ, I made it a point to pull Ken aside. He was talking, I, he might have been talking to Meyerowitz, I forget, but I went and I put my hand out and I said, I want to thank you for all that you've done to me, done for me. And he shook my hand and he was like, you know, you could see it. And he came up to me afterwards at the arena and he says, he says, I appreciate what you said. And he says, it just took a lot to suck it in. Because in as much as, you know, when I'm talking about it, it's like, you hate him? No, I don't hate him. That's just the way it was. It was, it was a rough, um, you know, unbelievable domain. And he was the one who told me, uh, he gave me the heads up. He says, this guy's a submission guy. And he gave me a little bit about what to do. Um, the unfortunateness of my knees being blown out the way they were 
nobody's fault. It was the, the ring itself was, it's funny enough, the original UFC was padded that way. And the fighters who were stand-up fighters made them rip it out. So that we actually had to wait a day or half a day so they could rip out the mat and put in a regular floor because the stand-up fighters said it favored the wrestlers. So back to the, the ring in UFCJ, it had a thick mat. I don't know what it is to this day, but they had a thick mat, and that's, I think, part of why I got stuck the way that I did, but it it was horrible. It exploded. You had a really weird – I remember watching that, a really weird unfortunate incident where it's just like you guys were grappling, all of a sudden your knee got folded up somehow and blew out. I mean, what, did, was, I mean, what kind of damage was done there? It was horrible. I for uh for as long as for well over a month there was so much water on my knee that I couldn't bend it. I'm like I'm gonna have to go have it done. So I took extreme measures and it was it was blown. I was messed up bad. So I wrapped it with heavy wire and I did this for a few days. I wrapped it tight and I started to flex it like trying to pop it myself. And I did this for a number of days and it didn't do anything. I was trying to do a squat. I could like bend it like a little bit. So one day I got crazy and I, and I stood in the doorway and I was trying to do it and I had never taken a leave before. I popped some leave that night after I did it, iced the shit out of it. I woke up the next day and I could move it all the way. Black and blue everywhere. But that was what made it happen. Other than that, I thought I'm going to have to be cut. Um, it's never really been the same since, but it's attached. So, so essentially you had a wrestling shoe on. Yeah. Uh, Joe was going for an upper body kind of like takedown and your your foot kind of planted on the side and it yeah. was almost like the grip on the shoe didn't allow your your foot to, to move with the movement. Yeah. It might be. It, it, by the time we hit the ground, it's like a heel hold. You know when the heel hold pops your knee out? But mm. it felt like if all your rub, if all your tendons open up like rubber bands and latched onto different parts of your knee. It, 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 was, it was, was so terrible. bad that yeah, I was laying in the back on a stretcher, and I think Yuki Kondo was not happy about my uh, my reaction to the pain. So he just did, you know, like he was he was gonna be upset with me and kick me, and I was just looking at him like, yeah, it's just the way they are, the way they are. But was, <laughs> it was horrible. I thought my my life was over at that point. I figured I thought the tendons were not attached. That's how mad I thought it was. You didn't have surgery? No, I I took I took a solid month before I could bend it. And then uh, once I could bend, yeah, once I could bend, and that happened in one night. That was me constantly trying to pop it. My knee was about the size of maybe two, you know, like a football. Man, I I got a question. You you had uh, all those years in Pancrase. You were there in '97 when John Lober had a run, and Lober's a guy that we like to ask about on here because he's another one of those like you know. Hardcore dudes. Any John Lober stories from over in Japan? Were you there when they popped his broke his leg? I was there when yeah, I I had I was with him a couple few times, um, just you know for the fights and stuff. And as much as you would hear these stories about him and you would see things about him, uh, he and I talked just like just like we're talking now. You know, we would talk about various things and uh, um, talked about like Tank Abbott, who I never met. Uh, you know, talking about it, I was like, is that is, uh, is that all an act? You know, and he would tell me stories about Tank that he knew of because, you know, he knew him. I, I never met him. Um, but then when we went to England, I was so surprised. We went to England for that fight in uh, what it's called. And they brought Tank Abbott in. And I guess he was going to fight somebody over there. And they gave him the microphone. And I was listening to him talk. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this kid's a college graduate. 
versus the first time I saw him talk at the UFC, I was like, keep that kid away from people because you never know. What's <laughs> you know, so some some guys know how to put it on for the stage, and some guys it's real. I mean, I heard what happened between Tank and Pat Smith in the elevator was real. Uh, I wasn't there. For <laughs> yeah, that was bad news. Um, but you know, to kind of rewind just a little bit, your match with uh, Joe Slick. Dan Henderson was supposed to be the original opponent. That's correct. What happened with – why did he pull out? I Well, I don't think he did. I, I Chris's match uh, in – was it New Jersey, Chris? Which one? Uh, yeah, I, uh, Atlantic City. Yeah, okay. So at that match, I ran into Dan Henderson just by, by quirk. And I said – we were talking, and I said, um, did you know that UFCJ, you were supposed to be? He says, no, I didn't know that. And I thought that makes sense because you, you don't know what the you don't know what the matchmakers or the promoters are doing. So a lot of times they're just you know, moving things around. And I wouldn't want to be a matchmaker for the life of me because, boy, that's a stress job. So um, when I found out that he didn't even know about it, I even felt you know better better about the whole ordeal. That would have okay, been Jason. Um, on a different note, like uh, I, I remember when I was on the Ultimate Fighter talking with the Jorge Rivera, and I thought at one point he said. You know, he had trained with you when he was early. Was there, was there a lot of guys who kind of made, like, you kind of help get, get started in the sport? Um, George is a, a great example of uh, the machine. So he was with me for three years. And in that time, when he finally got antsy, and I didn't, he came with no experience. And he was too raw to, I didn't want to send him out. And then at some point, he became anti. He says, I got to fight. I said, all right. I said, I'm going to hook you up. So I hooked him up with um, Phyllis Lee and he dragged <laughs> his feet out of it. And I don't know. I didn't know why at the time, but evidently somebody else was helping him out with the, I can do things for you. And they did. <sighs> he did good. You know, he, he did good for what he could. Um, he did a, you know, he has, he has a, a, a manly spirit and I was glad that he didn't get killed. Um, yeah. I, it's funny. He sent me a, recently. I could even find that. I'd send it to you. I haven't talked to him in eons, years, maybe 15. I don't even know. Wow. He, he, yeah. He, he sent me a picture the other day on my phone. And I looked at it and I said, Who is this? Because I'm going to flip phone. And uh, he said, George. So I called him up. I said, Rivera. Yeah. Okay. So we talked and I couldn't believe he was, he's uh, living in Florida. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I don't think he's in the business anymore. I think he's just doing normal stuff. Um, but I, I don't know. Um, but he was a guy that for all the time that he spent with me, uh, I always wished that he would give me a shout out on UFC. But I think there was a ban on my name in the UFC because Ken Ken helped with the black blackballing of of whatever that was. <laughs> I knew that was from Ken. So. I, I was like Jorge. I knew he was a good guy. So. Yeah, you no, quartered. I, you quartered. Was, he, go ahead, yeah. go ahead. I told you. No, that's okay. No, Georgia. I was I was very proud of the, the guts that George had, and living through what he lived through the the broken jaw to his family to everything else is yeah. still going. You um, did you ever run into Nate Marquardt in Japan? I'm surprised you two never matched up. I I did. That that's a funny funny. The first time I met him, I met him a few times, but the first time I met him. He saw me in the back room in uh, one of the big halls and he looks at me and he goes, do you ever get nervous? And just as he asked me, that, yeah, he goes, do you ever get nervous? 
because he was he was you know he was new. And I said, um, hold on one second. I, I called over to Yuki Kondo. I said, uh, I, I don't know if I said it in Japanese or English. That's how long ago it was. But I asked him essentially. Uh, I said, Yuki, do you get nervous before a fight? He goes, yes. So I went. Then I must get nervous too, because I really, <laughs> you know, you're doing it so long, you don't know, you don't know. So I, but that was that was funny. Nate Nate was really really nice man, really talented. He was the one he switched off Takase's heart. I don't know if you saw that fight. He fought a guy Takase. Takase had this weird shot where he would whip his head in and then run him behind it, and Nate kneed him in the head and it stopped his heart. They had to resuscitate him in the ring. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Nate was talented. Wow. Your, your trilogy with Boss Rutan, the rumor was it culminated with you putting a hex on him. Is that true? No. So, the, you know, this is one of those things. I'll, I'll say the story. I'm the guy who did it. And somebody will go, that's a lie. I'm the guy who did it. You can trust me. <laughs> um, yeah. the, 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 Wiccan, the nature of the Wiccan spell is it has to be done for the benefit of somebody else. That's what it's done for. So what I did was Frank Shamrock's first fight in Japan with no experience in fighting. He went over there for a month, trained for a month, and his first fight was Boss Bruton. Mm. So I, and, and this was this was all in, in uh, it's supposed to be in good spirit. So I drew the picture. And in the signature on the picture, I took a drop of Frank's blood and a drop of my blood. And this picture was for Frank's safety. Because I knew he knew nothing and Boss was already a, a, an animal in the ring. Yeah. And lo and behold, what Frank drew or won that fight, I don't even remember, but he did He won. Die. He won okay. the fight against Bass. And it was it was incredible. Like, it was almost as if Bass never saw it coming. This guy, Frank Shamrock, his first bout is yep. against Bass Rutten. It was just pretty incredible. Heroic performance. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the end result was he, he tried to call me out on, no, that's not true. You did it so that, you know, your magic, would you would win the fight. I said, that's not why I did it. If you remember back when I gave it to you, it was before your fight with Frank. And I says, if you doubt me, there's two drops of blood in the signature. And he knew that because he looked at it. He's like, yeah, there is. I says, you can look at those two drops and do the DNA and you'll see. You know, <laughs> why, would I, why would I put his blood in my signature? Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's what that was for. And uh that that was after the fact. That was long after the fact. That was years later when I actually told him about it. And I told him about it for a reason. Because he was being obnoxious. He was being really obnoxious as he could often be. And he's another guy. Love and respect him. But he didn't respect me. And the reason that I can say that now clearly is years later, I had a friend of a friend who's a promoter. And he showed me this magazine article. He said, check this out. And Boss was talking about the weirdest thing that ever happened to him. And up to that point, he and I were close, very, very good. And in the magazine, he, I guess he was in Europe at the time, and he said, the weirdest thing that ever happened to me was this guy did this thing talking about the pitcher. And the promoter said, I would love to make a match out of this. He says, can you make it happen? I says, I think I could, because we used to, Boss and I used to email all the time. Um, and so I sent him an email, and it said, uh, more or less words to the effect of, looks like you made enough publicity out of that, uh, that picture. I said, uh, how about giving me a rematch? And his answer was utter vitriol, condescending, 
disrespectful. And all I was trying to do was, I was going to pay him like 50 grand at the time for the fight. I wasn't going to get half that much. And I was just trying to set this <laughs> fight. But his reaction was, you know, you know, what do you think? This and that. We all know it would happen. And I was like, really? Really? Don't mistake my kindness for weakness. Pancras was Pancras. I was in the first UFC, not you, you dick. You know, I was, I don't know what I said, but I wrote back to him like, I don't know what you think, but we didn't say anything after that. I didn't speak. And I figured, all right, I'm going to leave it alone. So some people who were helping me said, you got to go to this place called Sure Dog to try to do some things. And I went there to find out Boss Pruden's there. He's big there. Hey, great. Things are getting said. People are sending me really was pissed me off. Somebody was sending me emails or uh, PMs and disgusting stuff. I'm opening this stuff and my kids are sitting there looking at it. And I'm like, really? You know, you, you pieces of shit. And that's, that's what I'm looking at. And then finally somebody says, hey, you got to check out Boss's narration of your fight with it. So I looked at it and more vitriol. And at some point in the fight where I, uh, this is the third fight where I gut wrench him, I take him down and I get it on top of him and I cross face him. And I'm looking right at him like, this is your reality. And uh, <laughs> yeah, at, at some point he says, look how easy he takes me down. I wish I could do it all over again. When I heard him say that, I was like, that's it. And I went to SureDog and I said, well, you said you wish you could do it all over again. Here it is. Let's do it. You know, whatever. And so he came up with, you know, my, his answer to me was, oh, you know, what, what is this? Like some kind of, and he goes, so I see, you know, you're a fuck up as a fighter. Now you're a fuck up as a man. I heard you've got a kid now. Now you're a fuck up as a father. And I'm like, whoa, really? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Check this out, motherfucker. I'll reach into your eyes, sodomize your eye sockets and peel your head like a fucking tangerine. These are my, my words coming out of me. I don't want to be like this with people, but how dare you fucking talk about me and my kids? You know, yeah. you know, but at the time, what it is, is what it is. Now, here's the funny thing. I look on, uh, this is not too long ago, near the election time. I look on a thing called Church Militant. And I see Boss Rudin on Church Militant. And he's like a converted soul. And I love it. And I hope it's real. Because it was profound. It was moving. I don't want I don't want to uh, go through that kind of feeling with people because I, I really do. I, I respect what he did. I respect the fact that he lived through that Randleman fight. Holy shit. And I've, I've been around boss, you know, several times in the last several years. And uh, he just seems like he's in a very good spot. And nothing yeah. but happy and nice to people. And he's always yeah, he's definitely whatever hatred he has. I feel like that's gone in that guy. So no, yeah, I feel like it's I always loved him. Yeah. I, I always loved him. And when I saw that, I was moved. When I saw the thing, the way he spoke and what he was talking about, it moved me. And I pray, I'm literally praying to God that I hope that's how he really is now. Because, yeah. Well, I, I know I know why fighters, some fighters, it has to be in their animus. They have to have a certain yeah. to be that way. And if you ever fought him, you'd be like, yeah, I get it. Because I'll give you another funny story about his, in, his ferocity. Guy Metzger is a fighter that I ultimately respect. And Guy Metzger, this is a true story, but Guy Metzger fought him in that fight, the, the story I told you about the knee bar. Um, and at some point, Boss had hit him, and he hit him on, I believe, the spleen side, which is not easy to get a harsh reaction out of the spleen side. Liver is right away. Boom. Oh, fuck. Spleen yeah. is, you could see he hit him good, but he didn't, Guy was very manly. He didn't make it, you know, he didn't really wince, but you could see it's like, oh, that sucked. After the fight, 
at some point they wanted a rematch for Guy to fight Boss again. And Guy was very frank with me. He's like, he, and he was in an accident, and that was, he was in a car accident or something. And he just was like, I'm not, I'm not taking this fight. He was talking to me about it, and he said, um, alluding to the, it wasn't really the car accident, but it's a good excuse. And it was more or less, his, his reaction was, to be honest with you, I didn't appreciate those shots to the body. In other words, I don't feel like going through that again. You know? yeah. And, wow. It, yeah, that's fucking Boss Rutten, man, is the real deal. Is the real deal. But the, uh, the the craziness of Boss Rutten, that's another story. Um, but, you know, you, you, that's what you, some artists to be that good, you have to have that edge. And uh, I'd rather do without it. You, you know, you, you touched on it a couple of times. I was wondering if you were around. I, I mentioned John Lober. And Lober was Frank Shamrock's first MMA fight. Yeah. And I think you've... you've, you've You've hinted that there was a, a difference between Pancras and, and real MMA fighting. Do you think Frank learned that lesson that day? Were you around him there? Because he got he got beat up that first time in. I I not, I talked to him before the fight, and I encouraged him not to do it. And I talked to him after the fight, and I could see the change. And that was definitely part of the transition of Frank had that he didn't used to have the switch. It took him a long time to find it. But when he found it, that switch came on. The Tito fight being the – because I never oh. – I went the longest time before I watched that fight. I, I, some of my students went to it, and they told me it was great. And I'm thinking in my head, it's great that he won. I'd never seen it until a couple few years ago. And I looked at it, and I was like, really? In my head. Because knowing who he was and seeing what he did, it's otherworldly to me. Otherworldly. Um, but he, he definitely – you could see when he formed that switch – and when it came on, because he, he was never like that. Frank was never, he didn't have any animus about anything. And Ken used to yell at him for it because Frank was, you know, he was like a martial artist. He just, yeah, we're just doing this. Oh, you tap me, I tap you. No, no, Ken would say. You're taking this thing home with you. you grab that guy's leg, it's coming off. Frank was, didn't want to be like that. Yeah, it's just the way it was. Wow. We started this interview with you chasing down, you know, traditional martial artists in order to challenge them to a fight. You're from the same neck of the woods as Frank Dukes, though, aren't you? No, he's a California guy. I thought he was a – well, I mean, you were in California. I figured if any – if you were going to chase anybody down, it would have been him. No, I didn't, I didn't even believe he was real. And, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't think any of that – well, because the story that I heard was Frank Dukes stole his life story from Paul Vizio. You know who that is? Paul Vizio was a was a bare knuckle fighter turned kickboxer, for for lack of a better, um, but he was big in the seventies. Paul Vizio was outstanding, and I, oh, wow. the story I heard was that he stole his life story. It's, it's, we're wrapping up here, and we're in California again. Let me, and and you know you were with the Gracies, and then obviously Stephen Seagal and 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 the the Lions. Then did you have was Gokor around? I have met Gokor. I tra I trained with his. Uh, I did a little bit of rolling with his student. I can't remember his name. Uh, again, Parisian, Harua, Haru. Oh, okay. Haru. Um, but yeah, I, I met Gokor a couple times. Um, and uh, just um training. He did a little bit of rolling with Ken when Ken was wearing a cast. Um, nice guy. I I liked watching his stuff. Cool. That was those were in the days when uh, Oleg Tektarov was around. 
Okay, he was there with the lights. And the other, the other legend I want to ask you from California is Gene LaBelle. I I never met Gene LaBelle, and it's kind of funny that Frank Shamrock, who had no interest in 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 martial arts, I guess at a certain point, met all of my heroes, and Gene LaBelle was one that I always wished I would meet. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and the other irony was Steven Seagal is the whole reason I wound up doing this, and he's a coach for the UFC, and I I can't even walk through the door. <laughs> <laughs> Horrible, yeah. That's a horrible yeah. irony. And Frank's Chris. not the whole. Here's another one. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, hey man, I mean, I, I know we've taken a ton of your time, and I really appreciate this. This has been absolutely awesome. All these stories are exactly why we decided to do this, and I can't thank you enough for sharing this stuff, man. I mean, this is uh, even eye-opening for myself, especially Japan times, and I was airline. I just had different insight I never even knew about. So. Really appreciate that, man. Anything we can ever do for you, man, just, just please let us let reach out to us. Chris, I love you, and I think about you sometimes. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. And I, uh, this is awesome. Thank you. It's been good catching up with you. True hey, martial thank artist you. right there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. We are closing out the Jason DeLucia interview. A fan they're like, guys, I think we're getting we're, – we're like fine wine guys. We're getting better with age, and we're getting better with this podcast because – this one was historic. What do you think, Mike? All right. So, Chris, in order not to disrupt the continuity of the interview, he was saying things, and I, we didn't ask him to open up on it because we didn't want to break the flow. So he had talked about a picture of two boys, young boys, I think, that you know, possibly had been murdered, like a picture of them. Would you mind opening up on that? So because Miguel and I don't even know what that conversation even means. And I don't, I think murdered was, you know, uh, a theory. I, from what I know, I never heard murdered. I've heard that, you know, they passed away. And uh, I don't know if, I mean, they never really opened up about that. So I don't know. I never really heard if it was murdered, if they, if they died while training. I got the impression though, it was like, just leave it alone, you know? So, Okay. They didn't really expand on it. I could have been a bit of a language barrier or just kind of letting go of that. But, yeah, I mean, um, they have interesting stuff going on there. So I don't really know what to make of that. Okay. Where was the picture located to where even yourself knew exactly what he was talking about? <laughs> well, you go into – like in the gym, they just had a couple pictures up there like um, – you know, people who kind of Carl Gotch, you know, people who found it in like just a couple of the pictures up and like, where are these guys? And they're just like, mm, you know, they, uh, they no longer here. So I'm like, OK. And then you kind of like, oh, they're dead. And then it was kind of like. OK, that, that was kind of it. They didn't maybe. say maybe, <laughs> they didn't say, maybe you know, so I, I don't know exactly what happened there, um, but there's always some speculation like, yeah, there's something that. uh they didn't make it, and uh, it was it was uh, it sounded kind of like nefarious, but you don't really know. Yeah, we we didn't want to cut Jason off. You know, I wanted to just keep keep the flow of what he was saying and stuff. But I told him, hey, we're gonna have to have you back for some of these because he hinted. He said that they were both. If I'm not mistaken, it sounded like he said they were both killed by the same guy in training. And is that feasible? Is that you know, well, yeah. I mean, yes. man, from what I saw there, and he's like very old school guy. From what I saw there, training was rough for the new guys. You know what I mean? I mean, they 
they knew how to train one way. And that, I mean, like I said, there was three of the young boys, what they called in there, and they were beating them bad. And then next time I show up, two would quit. I think they quit. Maybe they both <laughs> <laughs> they quit and then the third one became a tough fighter so i think they just like make you tough or you're, you you know it's sink or swim there it's not like we're you're not gonna have you come out there and embarrass them if you represent that company you're gonna be a tough guy and they're gonna make you tough or you're not gonna make it so maybe it went too far maybe something happened on, on some of those occasions i have no idea i wasn't i wasn't really privy to that i just Nobody's talking about those pictures, and I'm like, oh, I found this so interesting on many levels because, you know, I learned a lot from him that I had no idea about there. I mean, a lot of things there are very hush hush, and especially being a gaijing, you know, a foreigner, they're not telling me a lot of things, and and me to try to pick up on little things every time I went happened. But he was there a lot more than I was, so I I loved hearing what he had to say. It was fascinating. You know what was kind of alarming to me? Like you said, hey, the training sessions were tough. He didn't talk about those training sessions. He talked about Shamrock's training sessions yeah. being horrific. So, I mean, in comparison of the two, it but, doesn't sound but like no, it was no, no. I think that Shamrock, they mimicked the Japanese system. They had the young boy system. You come in, you have to try. I mean, I think that's where Shamrock and those guys got it from. I think they got it from the Japan Hierarchy. I think that's where they learned it. Yeah, and Josh Barnett too. Also in the category. I think Ken, you know, and Ken sees, you know, what Jason described as as basically sadism from Suzuki. You know, he said Funaki was a little bit more of a gentleman in in uh, in, in the gym, but he said Suzuki was a real killer, and you can see Ken. Well, we, Ken took to that right away. That's Ken's style because he copied that one. That's the one he liked, you know. Yep. Yep. And then he took it to a next level. But I, but yeah, I think I think there's definitely, um, do, you know what Jason did is he let us under the hood of the Japanese because the Japanese it's like oh it's so respectful and the fans they all love the fighters and every and everybody and you know you can always tell stories about how it's safe in the streets at two in the morning and stuff like that but there's very much an edge to being over there and being you know maintaining a professional career over fifty fights and stuff that you got to be aware of and and I think Jason was the first one who really let us in on that because he had a lot of good little examples just things he noticed. The, like the, the cameraman, guy, yeah, the cameraman with the that he, he said he swears it's the same cameraman with the with the ball. You know I mean? and, and and you can see like adjusting to the lights and stuff like that. Like you can see how you know it could come into play in the first few minutes of the fight. Yeah, is this the second or third guy that talked about being poisoned? Olog in our Olog Victorov interview said he was poisoned. Did Eric Paulson? I think Paulson said he was too, right? Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to put words in somebody's mouth. I don't remember for sure, but I think it's a prevalent theme that you know people feel something's going on, like when when they travel and traveling for the first time and traveling the hostile territory. You know, when you go to Russia, it could happen. You know, in the early days, the Americans, when they went to Brazil, you would think it could happen. In Japan, you kind of get the impression you're all taken care of and stuff. But then I wonder how many guys really, you know, spent a couple of days on the toilet or whatever. You know, you never know. Man, I mean, you got to understand thing. In a lot of these countries, I mean, 
honor, respect, and winning this is a big deal to them. You know, I mean, they don't want to come lose to a foreign guy. You know, and you see some of these fans and people who are in charge are fanatical, man. I mean, I wouldn't put it past anybody to. It may sound crazy, but I wouldn't put it past anybody to do. You know, tamper with your water. Well, yeah, you seal it back up. I mean, it's very possible. I'm not saying it did happen. I'm saying I could definitely see that happening, and it's not crazy to think that, that that's a reality. I mean. Am I, did it happen for sure? I got no idea, but is it possible? I think absolutely. Well, Chris, here, we talk about national pride and, and things like that. You use the term gaijing. If you look up the term gaijing, it means animal face. Like, it's actually a derogatory term. What? I learned That's that, what they I, told me. <laughs> I learned that from Boss Rutten. Also, Chris, you've talked about there's certain bars where they just hold up an X. They don't allow foreigners in there. No, only- they said no gaijing. No gaijing. So... All right, I'm leaving. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, imagine if you were to do that here under any circumstances or pretests. Yeah. Like, yeah, there'd you know? be CNN would be there. There'd be a news media. They'd be, they'd be a canceled that bar. But I mean, like, Dude, you can't even, you can't even post a dress code without some sort of ism being thrown your way. But you know what, man? I mean. They don't they care. Were, I, I was there many times, and you go to certain places, and uh, I look around. I'm like, "Well, who's causing the lion's share of the problems here?" That guy, Jing. <laughs> so I can, I can see it. They're like, "No, we're not letting this happen because you guys are causing problems." I get it. I, I didn't really get a fit. I was like, well, all right, "Fine, I'll go someplace else." But I was like, "Yeah, I'll I trouble other elsewhere." <laughs> yeah, I'll take my business elsewhere. I'll give my other people, do- you know, my money. You know, so whatever. <laughs> hmm. And yeah, Jason, Jason's a guy that I don't think a lot of people have interviewed. I think we got a lot of great information, great insight. I think, you know, more power to him, 50 fights in Japan. And he's still, you know, we didn't even scratch the surface. I, you know, I, I, we got to have him back, I think. If you Yeah. Have- All right. So this is how we tied it up. Um, Ed Tyson, we do a um, MMA artifacts show on the um, the other channel, on Eclipse channel. Ed had his phone number. Jason only has a flip phone and an email. Doesn't know anything about technology, nor does he care to have anything with technology. And he hasn't done an interview in about a decade. So Chris shot him a text, said he needed to talk to Chris to kind of verify it was him. And we went from there. Lytle and Tyson, they're the ones that lined this up. And, man, dude, this was a special. This was a special conversation. And like you said, UFC one veteran. I mean, going to try and track Steven Seagal down to fight him in the street. I mean, dude, this <laughs> thing was amazing. I mean, so there's so a couple- old school. This is, this is, I mean, it doesn't get any more old school than that. I no. mean, before UFC uh-huh. one, this guy's out there doing it. Um, <laughs> man, this guy had tons of great stories. And these are the stories I love. You talk about, you know, in the it's got to be in the 90s starting in the 90s somewhere he had tons of them so man was, that was that was an amazing yeah. interview thank you so much jason for giving us that and then crowbar there's a couple trivia questions there if you go to all the wikipedias for the ufc ufc one he always mentioned jason deluca or delucia was the first fight he he was right before the championship bout because i remember i watched it but the thing is it's it's an alternate bout and they're just still trying to make their way and, you know, they put it at the end. It's just, it's not, it's not true. He was, like, second to last fight. First fight was uh, Gordo, was it not? Yeah. N- knocking uh, teeth out. So, I think I've got to lead 
and uh, Thule as well. See how he talks without teeth? Yeah. <laughs> Just one how, do you, how do you start an apple? <laughs> Sorry. You know, my, my hat's off to uh, Jason Delucia and also Fred Ennis, who up until now was, you know, the UFC 2 veteran that we had interviewed and stuff. At the end of the day, in 93-94, there were a couple of traditional martial artist guys that were willing to step up and try this. And a lot they get the reputation of those traditional martial arts, they wouldn't try this, and they banned it, they hated it, and stuff like that. There were a couple of guys like Fred and Jason Delucia who actually pursued it and 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 were there and had the you know the stones to do it. So my hat's off to them. MMA legend. Chris. Hey man, hopefully you guys enjoyed that as much as we did. Doesn't get more old school than that. Doesn't get more real than that. That's where the sport came from. Thank you and keep watching. And uh, man, uh, anybody you want us to get a hold of or talk to, please let us know. Check out the full interview on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms.